He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. It's Saturday, July 29, 2023. I think episode 159 could be one of the greatest. It's not about me. It's about the author, Alan Prendergast. His book, Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption, and the Klan. I'll tell you, this book is easily one of my top 10 favorites of all time. Of course, it's easy with me. I'm a Denver guy. I worked at the Denver DA's office. Hell, I ran for Denver DA after working there 16 years. Even on my columns and as part of my podcast, I trade on the fact that I was a chief deputy DA in one of the greatest prosecution offices in America. A big part of that involves the people who have led that office, like Philip Van Sice, his deputy, O. Otto Moore, who ended up being one of Dale Tooley's assistants in the early 1980s who trained me. So I am old enough now to be part of history. Right there with me is our troubadour, Dave Gunders. He brings us a wonderful song called World Gone Crazy. It's on his new album called Connected. Go to YouTube Music or any place You find music, Amazon, SoundCloud. Look for World Gone Crazy off his Connected album. And back in the 20s, when my grandpa Harry was trying to be a Denver lawyer, the world had gone crazy in Colorado. You had these confidence men who invaded the city every summer, plying their trade on helpless tourists and anybody else who is gullible. People's lives got ruined. The law looked the other way. Colorado, Denver, it was wide open. And it needed to be fixed. Phil Van Sice was the courageous Republican DA who said, enough, enough of this in our city. And then the KKK came along and they tried to co-opt the GOP. The Klan had their hooks in Southern Democrats, but up here in Colorado, It was mainly the Republicans, starting with Chief Judge Morley in Denver, and they made him governor. When I say they, I mean the Klan. I mean their top organizer, the Grand Wizard, John Galen Locke, L-O-C-K-E, Doc Locke was a bad guy, and he was a Denverite, and he's buried at Fairmount Cemetery. Makes me think twice about being buried there myself, even though that's where I grew up between Fairmount and GW. I'm a Denver boy. This is a great episode. We start with our troubadour, Dave Gunder. It's another great Denver guy, Denver musician. We talk about the world events, including Donald Trump going down. Some people think these indictments make him stronger. I don't think so. Eventually, the facts start to get impressed on people's minds. I don't think any disinformation, deep state, whatever, on right-wing radio can obscure that. 
There's quite a war going on on right-wing talk radio. Alan Prendergast knows Peter Boyles well for part of the same reason I do. Jean Benet fascinated all of us. We participated on the radio with Peter Boyles, who was a leader in covering that. Sadly, Peter was also a leader in coming out against uh, illegal immigrants, birtherism, in favor of Tom Tancredo, Pat Buchanan, just a lot of things that don't make Peter my cup of tea anymore. But back in the day, we got along and we did a lot of Fridays together. So I thought, hell, why don't we do one more since Peter Boyles filled in for George Brockler on July 27th. I played along with him and Dick Wadhams. That comes between part one and part two of the tremendous Alan Prendergast interview. Alan Prendergast is a premier writer here in Colorado, in America. I think this book is sensational. Find out why this entire show rocks. Please tell your friends, subscribe, five stars on Apple, most appreciated. Let's start with our troubadour Dave Gunders and his song, World Gone Crazy, followed up by Alan Prendergast with Gangbuster, and then some intermittent shots and attempts at humor and analysis through hate radio, talk radio, Denver Trump radio, white Christian nationalist radio, whatever you want to call it. We talk about it here. We talk about everything. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. It rocks. Say what? Said it rocks. Troubadour, you're all fired up, and I know why. <laughs> you got me fired up on this Friday, Craig. Yeah, I got you fired up, yeah. not on whiskey, but on your own supply. <laughs> That's it. My own fuel. Your hit song, World Gone Crazy, off your new album, Connected. It took me to discover it and realize wow, this is perfect for episode 159. Because 100 years ago in Denver, the world had gone a little crazy. We were the king of the easy pickings for con men in Denver. And then the Klan took hold of Colorado. But thank God for a strong Denver DA. That's our show. It's about Gangbuster, the story of Philip Van Sice, Denver DA. And your song goes perfect because... With Alan Prendergast, our main guest, I get into it about Peter Boyles, the guy who's dominated hate radio. And your song pretty much illustrates that hate radio and hate in general and radicalism has made the world go crazy. Am I right? Something like that. What was your inspiration exactly for this rocking anthem? It's a rocking anthem of yours. I, I hate to say I don't even remember which um, mass shooting was was the um, catalyst for the song, but it was another mass shooting, um, you know, yeah, AKA forty seven, AK forty seven, that type of thing. Right, and and so I I wrote I wrote you know news flashed across my screen my screen. And and about the news that all of a sudden there's another you know I was like making dinner and in in the kitchen watching TV, um, just seeing it a flash across the screen and it was like it had just been maybe a day or two since the prior one and I said I don't even have time to process the one that just happened and now there's another one 
that was the that was the uh, inception. There. Right, violent crime will do that. It will put the world on tilt, especially for people personally victimized. So the world gone crazy is perfect, and then a good DA can maybe get the world spinning right. You like the movie The Sting, right? Very much. Then you will love this book, Gangbuster. It's in front of you. I've got a signed copy of Gangbuster. I've got a signed copy of your album, Connected. I am in heaven. But con men like Redford and Newman played in the movie. They're kind of charming, you know, vagabonds, ladies, men. Yeah. But there was a dark side to it. You know what it was? Um, Well, let's see. The dark side. Well, the dark side was the... um were was the, the the bad mobsters. They see they were the they were the good they were guys. the good but they, they were like the they Robin were stinging Hood the bad mobsters. Right. But yeah, the, yeah. the real con men had real victims, people who got wiped out, sometimes right. other people's money. Right. And several committed suicide. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, one guy, this guy named Norfleet, and he's part of the book, he goes out for revenge and he travels the country trying to identify the guys who swindle him ends up helping Van Sice immensely in Denver, Colorado. I just think it's the most fun book, but the most fun thing that I've seen this week belongs to you, my friend, and you know her name. Let's tell the (laughs) audience about Layla. Layla's my new puppy, my new six months. She's almost seven months. And uh, she's a little, a little. I don't know what we got her at the dumb friends lead. She's got some lab and maybe some uh, spaniel in her. She's awful cute. Some hound dog. Maybe, she's a sniffer. She's, she's a sniffer. Everything, but everything. not a swimmer yet. You know, I've had her in the water, but she's a little tentative still. She swims great, but yeah. she's she just goes right for the side. You know, um, she'll get it. I think she's fantastic. Have you followed the news this week about Trump in further trouble? A little bit, yeah. Yep. Still no indictment on the January 6th insurrection. Right, but it's getting um, good at Mar-a-Lago, and I'm waiting for more, the poll leak to be a part of it. I'll tell you the polls. interesting, yeah, the actually the interesting statistic that I heard on NPR, of course, yes. where I listen to all my news, is that uh, his polls are only getting stronger, Craig. Only getting stronger. I don't think it's sustainable, though. I think it'll hit a breaking point. It's crazy. I, I think that's the lesson, the good lesson of Gangbuster, because- these guys flame out. You have beautiful songs. We thought about Deep Down, and then we had Eddie Don't Quit a while ago. And they're both about, well, Eddie Don't Quit especially. You remarked these bad characters end up self-immolating. They destroy themselves. Right. And your song right here could be applied to a world gone crazy, a world gone, are you saying mad? I'm saying mad. You could say Vlad. I could say Vlad. The world gone Vlad, because that guy now, is it wrong to hate Putin? I mean, I, I, if, if I was Ukrainian and I'd lost, you know, haven't had someone in my family who was lost uh, or even friends or something like that to, to rage against Putin. No, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's natural. Right. Because in your song, you reject hate. And that's why it's so perfect, because we end up talking about hate radio that's kind of trying to make amends. The media is the message. And, you know, I was in the belly of that beast. So toward the end of my Prendergast interview, I go into Jean Benet, which leads to Peter Boyles, in a different discussion. In the interim, I'm going to play some sound of Peter Boyles that he was hosting this morning for Brockler. And he's coming out against the big lie, which is good. 
but he really won't name names. What I like is Jack Smith and Phil Van Sice. They have the courage to name names. And a new guy, Dialiberos, Carlos Dialiberos, was in on the plotting at Mar-a-Lago. Some say they want him to flip, but I don't think they need much more evidence. They have a lot of evidence, but the J6 indictment is coming next week. And God willing, you know, this world gone crazy will go back to spinning correctly. Do you know what the word superseding means? Yes. Go ahead. To supersede? To tr- to Trump. <laughs> to, hey, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, to Trump, to to um, to over overwhelm, I guess. Um, with- to me, it's just a motion to amend. What I can't quite figure out is, when did they have to lay their cards out? Because the allegations of some new text messaging, did they just get that? Seems to me they've had it for a while, and they probably have some other stuff. I'm more an expert on state charging, but all of this is fascinating. Ultimately, they're going to have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of 12. But I'll tell you what is hateful and a world gone crazy. Have you seen what they're mandating in terms of education of Florida students regarding slavery? I know that uh, critical race theory is something that um, is being rejected. Right, and they passed a series of anti-woke laws, and white people are not allowed to be made to feel bad about slavery. Right, why wouldn't that be? (laughs) Because they were kids. We should feel bad about slavery. uh, Right, but maybe the theory that... And and while we're at it, how about what we did to, to the Native Americans? Right, but that's a lot to put on eight year olds. It might make them feel bad. It's how it's presented. It's history. Right. You know, it, we can we can have a great country founded on great ideas. So this is what they're teaching but, in Florida. But have, but have had wrongs, but but along the way have stumbled and done wrong things. That That is not, I don't think that's too much to put into the mind of an eight-year-old, really. Right. But in Florida, the new mandate is that eight-year-olds should be taught that there were some benefits to black people regarding slavery. They learned sure there skills. Were benefits. Benefited the cotton plantation no, owners. No, no, benefits for the black people. They oh, learned my, certain skills, oh. like how to be a blacksmith, for example. You know who said that? <laughs> who would have said Ron that? Ron DeSantis. Right, he was saying there was candidate. some benefit. Yes. It would have been more beneficial if they had learned to be a blacksmith as a free man. Yes, let's, let's, obviously. Yeah, let's and then Gutfeld on Fox said Nobody something about the Holocaust and the worst misinterpretation of Victor Frankl. But that's kind of what we're dealing with in Gangbuster. It's people who regard others as lesser. Black people, Hispanic people, Jewish people, it doesn't matter. They will let you have some rights in society, but white Christians are not going to give up their power. You listened to Bradley Onishi, episode 158, and what did you think of him and his theories about white Christian nationalism? I enjoyed him very much. I mean, he's a smart guy, and I thought he's a um, straight thinker and very articulate. I mean, um, I, I I don't know if I agreed with with everything that he said. I mean, we would we would have to get into a deeper discussion. But same but, hair, but he yeah, was smart. But he was very smart, and I thought he and he was also I think um, you know he was reasonable in his in his uh, assessments of of what's happening. Right, and he's yeah. coming at it as I told him, not from the perspective of a Jewish guy, but a guy who's part Japanese American, right. and he had a perspective. That was totally different, just like Alan Prendergast. We both grew up in Denver, 
And he went to East, I went to GW, we went to CC together. We didn't know each other well, but I've always been aware of his work. And it's fantastic, this double feature I have, because Bradley Onishi, with his talk about white Christian nationalism, sort of sets the stage for Gangbuster, even though Gangbuster is 100 years ago, it was the same wrap yourself in the flag, cry out about crime, we will protect you, rely on us, don't rely on the police. And they corrupted the entire Denver Police Department. That's what I worry about with MAGA, too, how they get their hooks into law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the Klan was huge in Colorado. Your family wasn't here then, although your dad came back to train with the 10th Mountain Division here. But 100 years ago, when my grandpa was here, uh, Clarence Morley was the Klan uh, chief judge. Then he became governor of Colorado. He was a Republican. They had the Republican U.S. Senate candidate. A guy named Rice Means was a Klansman. They had Ben Stapleton. It was bad. But one smart guy and some self-defeating, stupid moves. And a lot of it was these guys got taped. They got tape recorded at the dawn of recording devices. You, as a recording artist, a hundred years ago, this technology was new. Right. And for them to put a listening device in Lou Blonger's office in downtown Denver was quite a process. And when it worked, they knew everything he was saying, including during his trials. That must have been one of the first uh, incidents of of, of using a recording device to as... um... You know, for as evidence, right? Exactly. Yeah. And they couldn't really record it. They could hear it, so they would have transcribers transcribe what they heard from across the street. Oh. So oh, it's okay. amazing. All right. And yeah. and And that was before any laws that said you have to right? Because exactly. you're you're not allowed to just record someone no. without their knowledge now. This right? was before yeah. all those laws. This was right. the twenties, man. This was Denver, Colorado in the twenties. It was a world gone crazy. Thanks for the great song, the great discussion. My prediction, Donald Trump, he may get more popular in the short run, but as the facts come out, he's going down. The world gone crazy. We're not going to put up with the hate. And what I like and what our show tries to do today, I like any song with a line about looking in the mirror. Right. That Michael Jackson song, you have that hair. Yeah. Have some introspection, right? Right. Some self-respect. Right. Be like Philip Van Sice. Don't be like Lou Blancher. Don't be like John Galen Locke. Don't be like Donald Trump. Right. It comes down to each of us individually. Making change. What a great album. Everybody should get it. How can they get your album connected? They can call me up. <laughs> oh, get a hold of me through the website. We'll and get there is, a copy. You, thanks yeah. for autographing mine. It's a fantastic series of songs, and it starts right here. World Gone Mad by Dave Gunders. It's a world gone crazy, right? World gone crazy. Thank you, Troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks, Craig. News flash across my screen. Won't sink in. Hate raining down on us once more. No time to process, now it's gone down again I'm thinking that tomorrow there'll be more
gone missing Some kind of madness drift across our land Too much talk, not enough listening catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bacon. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent.
reputation for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156. 303-734-7156. I am Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Oh my goodness, this is exciting. In my studio is one of my favorite authors, Alan Prendergast, is in the house. He wrote what has become one of my all-time favorite books. It's called Gangbuster, and the topic is sensational, the synchronicity uh, transposed with the times in which we live. Alan, you've written a masterpiece Congratulations. Thanks for coming over. Well, thanks, Craig, for that stirring introduction. That's great. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, last night I sat listening to the audible version of your book. Very well done. If you like audiobooks by Gangbuster, I got it on Audible, but I also had the hard copy. And you know you love a book when you are reading and listening at the same time. And I savored the ending. Isn't that what you do with the very best books? I didn't know how it was going to end. And it it, it was a page turner. <laughs> well, that's great because it's actual history. You know, people, some of the finest words I've heard from people about the book is people say it reads like fiction. It's, it's all true, but it's nice to hear that. Alan Prendergast is a very accomplished author. You've seen him in Westward. He's written other books. But to me... This has major motion picture written all over it. Tell us that it's a project in the works. Who's going to play Philip Van Sice? Well, I haven't heard from Hollywood yet. I think with the strike, maybe they're slowing down a little bit. But yeah, somewhere down the line, I'd love to take nominations on Van Sice. Uh, you know, it's a story about a dynamic underdog taking on a whole slew of corrupt fo- people. And, uh, you know, there's <laughs> there's certainly potential there for something dramatic, I hope. Netflix uh, limited series, maybe. Absolutely. And the timing could not be more profound. It's almost like you wanted to find a story that could help us understand what we are going through 100 years later. I've always been attracted to this time period. I've done prior shows about Oh, Otto Moore and the way he battled the Klan, a man I knew personally. But I've never had the situation of 100 years ago fleshed out for me what was really going on in Denver, Colorado, the way you did it. It was magnificent. I don't know what to tell my listeners 
because I don't want to spoil the suspense within the book. So I'll leave it to you. How do you like to put it? Well, I, I, I like to try to tell people that, you know, Denver 100 years ago was a very different place than we think it was. And, and in some ways, it's more reminiscent of what we're going through right now. I, I, I tried not to draw too glib or obvious kind of parallels, but the, the fact is, to me, it, it, the past is a lot closer than we think it is. We think we don't have any connection to things that went on, you know, 100 or 200 years ago, and we're wrong about that. I mean, some of these things are still with us in one way or another, and that was sort of something that came to me as I was working on the book, was just, wow, I, you know, this reminds me so much of what's happening in the news today. Here's how you got me. You are covering my favorite topics in venues that I know and love. If anybody loves Denver, Colorado, this is essential reading. I'm a Denverite through and through, although I moved just beyond the city's borders when I lost my race for Denver DA in 1996. Maybe it was hurt feelings. Maybe it's because I wanted my kids to get the best education possible, but I still love Denver. And I spent 16 years at the Denver DA's office, and then I left when I ran for the job in 1996. And I can't believe how ignorant I am about the history of Denver and that specific office that I loved and dedicated my life to. What are you, some kind of educator, Alan? <laughs> well, I got interested in this because I was interested in that history, too. And I, and I grew up in this town, and this is my town. And when I find out that there was this character from 100 years ago, this Philip Van Sice, who was a war hero and became DA almost by... Uh, uh, you know, uh, by by odd chance, really, because he wasn't suspected to expected to win the election, right? He came in as sort of a dark horse, and then he finds his town is much more corrupt than he thought it was. He he ran on a we're going to clean up, you know, the crime and that sort of thing. Then he realizes that to some extent, the mayor, uh, the police force, public safety director, they're all in on it to some degree. So he has to come up with new ways of doing his job. And, and I, I heard this story a few years back when Van, when we, we, there was a debate over naming the new jail and the Van Size name came up. And I said, how is it possible I never heard of this guy? I, I grew up in this town. This is my town. I can't let this story go away. So that was the starting point, was finding out that he had taken on this organized crime underworld in Denver and beaten these confidence men who had this national racket going out of Denver and had done this by coming up with new ways to do his job because he couldn't trust his own police force. And I thought, this is a pretty good story in itself. But that turns out to be just the prelude, that the real sequel is after he clears out the con men, he has to face the Ku Klux Klan, which was in the process of taking over state government in Colorado. And that's an amazing story that has not been told before, and I was very eager to get into that. I did ask, are you an educator or something, knowing full well that you do get paid to teach at the best college in America? Tell everybody about that. I am a visiting instructor, which is a polite way of saying a part-timer, uh, at Colorado College. I teach one class a year, and I've been doing that since I graduated. Well, not since I graduated, but certainly over the last 20 years at my alma mater, Colorado College. My alma mater, too. And We've been living well. parallel lives. We were there at the same time. Didn't really know each other there, but uh, know a lot of the same people. Right. Because while I was jerking around playing basketball, you were in the best creative writing class at Colorado 
College, a two-block program over the winter, and it was a renowned instructor who probably made you the great writer you are today, and you are fantastic. I think you owe it to CC. am I right? I, I owe a lot to CC, and they had great instructors. James Yaffe, who was the creative writing guy and a novelist in his own right, uh, was certainly one of them, yes. He a, was a great influence on me. Dang it. I wasted so much of my life playing basketball, but that's okay. What's it like being a great writer? I mean, you've <laughs> well, done it for a living for decades, and uh, ha, ha, what is that life like? Well, you know, it's... It, Writers complain a lot about this, that, and the other, but they really have a good life as far as I'm concerned because they're doing something that they like to do. A lot of people uh, don't necessarily have their dream job. They're not necessarily doing the thing that they really enjoy. And to me, I mean, this was the most fun I've had in years writing this book because uh, I felt pretty unfettered from the deadlines and the concerns you have when you're doing uh, magazine or newspaper journalism and could really spend a lot of time in this era learning about the people and the context in which these things took place and the language, which to me was really rich. You know, I mean, just there's so much great material there. And, you know, these con men had their own special lingo. And, uh, you know, it was fun to go back into that period and that mindset a bit. Gosh, you taught me so much about Denver, but beyond uh, the organized crime that Ben Sykes cleaned up in Denver, the Klan that he fought, just like the bulldog that he was, there was a predicate to it. And of course, I've heard about the Ludlow Massacre, but it hasn't been a big part of my life. And at Hill Junior High and GW, I wasn't really taught that part of Colorado history. The most I ever learned about it was from your book, why was it important for you to write about that, and uh, how did you get interested? Uh, well, the Ludlow Massacre was, among other things, uh, a very formative experience for Van Sice because so I'm trying to learn this guy's background. One of the important things that happened was he was a captain in the state militia, what, you know, what we call the Colorado National Guard, uh, long before he became DA. I mean, he was in the, the Guard, then he was a lieutenant colonel in World War One, he was a military intelligence officer, and then he became DA. And Ludlow really helped shape him. And most people don't know anything about Ludlow. Ludlow was a dispute between the coal miners and uh, the coal operators in southern Colorado back when this was one of the major, that was one of the major industries in Colorado. People don't think about the mining industry in Colorado, and especially the coal industry. And so if you mess with coal, you're messing with people's energy and it's you're an energy some, situation. And you're messing, like with very, you're messing with very big corporations. I mean, one of the people who had the most coal operations in Colorado was Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller Jr. And so some of this, what essentially happened was the miners went on strike. This is 1914. And who were the miners? By they were mostly immigrants, mostly from Southern and Eastern Europe. They were, you know, Italians, Jews. Uh, there were uh, Greeks. There were uh, Romanians and Russians. All sorts of people. And what like part that. of Colorado are we? We're talking exactly. Southern Colorado. We're talking like Walsenburg, Trinidad, places like that. So these fast coal fields, the, the, the miners went on strike because it was the most dangerous working conditions in the country. The operators tried to get rid of them. Of course, if you go on strike and you live in a company town, you're essentially evicted, right? So they they lost their homes. They set up tents along the railroad tracks to try to stop the scabs, the people the mine operators were hiring to come in and break the union. 
Um, so they had these enormous tent colonies in southern Colorado, right along railroad tracks, including Ludlow, which had over a thousand men, women, and children in it. Van Sice was part of the militia that was brought in to try to keep the peace, and it ended up being a conflict between the militia and the strikers. And this is after Van Sice's company had been recalled, but it broke into violence in April of 1914, and a number of women and children were killed by the militia, essentially setting fire to the tents and asphyxiating some people who went to try to hide in pits below the tents. Uh, and so it was one bad uh, leader on the militia side who triggered all of this? There's a guy named uh, Carl Lindenfeld who was uh, really a bad actor, and Van Sice, who was not there when this happened, went back down to investigate at the governor's request found soldiers who told him Lindenfeld had, had, had executed prisoners and tried to get him court-martialed. He became the whistleblower of this entire affair. And this is when his name first became prominent because he was standing up against the National Guard and saying, you know, this was a crime and these people should be punished. He called that Lindenfeld? Uh, I think it's Linderfeld. Linderfeld, right? uh, a German guy. Yeah. And yeah. Who was a bigot, right? Well, yes. There's no question that he, he had all these confrontations with these colonists, especially the immigrants, especially the Greek immigrants. And the, he killed the Greek leader by bashing him in the back of the head with a rifle. Uh, and, That'll start Yeah. So, so basically, the, to make the story shorter, uh, nobody was really... Uh, held responsible for any of this. It was a very bitter education for Van Sice and how the system does not have accountability for things like this. And he found it again. He, 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 he was astonished when we had a, uh, uh, a tramway strike in Denver while he was running for. I'd never heard about that. I'd heard about the Sand Creek massacre. You touch on that too, but this streetcar situation how long was that after Ludlow? How many were killed at Ludlow again? Ludlow, there was about 20 people who were killed. Uh, one militiaman, some bystanders, but mostly women and children. Um, and then people got killed in the Denver strike. Yeah, this is a tramway strike after. in 1920, and there were several people died in the, in the course of the riots and the conflicts that broke out between the strikers and the strike breakers who were brought in, these professional strike breakers under the... Under the the, the command of this guy named Blackjack. Anyway, uh, Van Sice was astonished that the DA at the time did not file criminal charges against the strike breakers for, for shooting in, into a crowd of innocent people. And that was another campaign platform of his. So when he got into office, he was very determined he wasn't going to be part of this sort of systemic corruption that he'd seen first at Ludlow and then again with the strike. And once again, like you and me, he's a Denver boy. His dad was a Denver lawyer, right? Well, he grew. He was born in uh, Deadwood, but, right? Deadwood. But, but they but they moved here when he was in his teens, and he went to East High School. And his father was a very prominent attorney. Uh, he was also on the Public Utilities Commission, and he taught law up at CU. And Phil followed in his footsteps. He got a law degree from CU, Greatest Law School in America. And then he would joined his father's law firm. But he was still a young man. He was still very restless. So that was how he ended up spending all his time in the National Guard and then going abroad in World War I to the front lines in France. And then when he came back, seeing that his town was, you know, seemed to be at a crossroads, decided to run for DA. There's where I had no idea. If you would have said, okay, Denver and the big store, I would have said Mile High Kennel Club. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Isn't that what they called Mile High Kennel Club? The I, big I, store? I, I may yes. have been. The big store was a con artist term. 
This was 100 years ago. Yes. And Denver was known as the big store because it was the place that was totally protected. If you came in as a con artist and you you went to see the fixer, who was Lou Blonger, and really ran Denver, uh, he was the guy who, you, you, you if you were going to do anything criminal in town, you had to get his permission to operate. You had to give him a cut. And he, in return, he would make sure the police left you alone. This guy, Lou Plancher, is something else. It's almost like a Charles Dickens name, right? Oh, and he's a Dickens-like character, if you see the picture of him. And he he fought in the Civil War, right? Yeah, he was was a Civil War veteran. He had been in Denver, a fixture in Denver, for at least 30 years, since the late 1870s or early 1880s. And he had started out like a lot of these guys. He'd run crooked card games and... You know roulette wheels and things like that, but as he, he 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 climbed up the ladder, and at the time Van Sice became DA, he was supposedly a respectable investor, uh, but he obviously had other things in mind because he, he he tried to bribe Van Sice before he even got elected DA. He offered him a huge campaign donation, and Van Sice was wondering what is this guy protecting that you know he can afford to offer me more money than I would make in five years. I mean, that's the basic story. Van Sice is incorruptible in a town full of corruption. He is. He's the guy that you want to root for. And you know that the odds are very much against him because of the nature of how deep this corruption goes. But bit by bit, he does some amazing things. And this is, to me, that's that's why these kind of books are always important, is, is one person who really you know can make a difference in something like this keeping their eye on the prize, understanding that, you know, the Constitution is important, <laughs> things like that. Um, he really made a difference, I think. One public official who could stand up and say this stuff is wrong. That was important. And where do you think Van Sice got that from? From his father? From his maybe good education up at CU? I know he did, you didn't write about it, but George Norland was fighting battles against white supremacy, etc., and I'd like to think Boulder's good influence on most people, but you tell me, was it just serendipity that Bill Van Sice turned into the great man that he was? Well, I think, you know, certain people are, they're presented with a certain opportunity and they have to make choices. Uh, his father certainly was a strong part of this. His father had given him a very strong sense of right and wrong. His father also was a man who uh, was ahead of his time in a lot of way in his views on race and his views on various progressive issues. Uh, Phil was actually a conservative Republican compared to his dad, which is, I think, kind of interesting. At one point, he was in the progressive party, but he became more conservative as he went along. But but the most important thing that he didn't lose sight of was that there were things more important than politics. That, that for example, you know, the, the rule of society should not be polluted by all these other sort of mercenary or religious concerns. He was very he was very worried about religion getting injected into politics, which is partly what the Klan was about. The Klan was about forming alliances with evangelical Protestants and setting up this kind of divisive, polarized situation where it was, you know, we're the real Americans and these other people aren't. And there were special pressures, right, on Protestants because the Klan wouldn't have pressured me. They don't want me. I'm a Jewish guy. But, well, yeah. And if, if somebody was Catholic back then, uh, they couldn't really be part of the Klan. Uh, so Protestant white guys were expected to be part of it. Am I right? Yeah, yes. And and it, it becomes there is a lot of pressure on that once they start saying, well, you're either on our side or you're on their side. 
and we can help your business. You know, mm -hmm. sort of like we're a fraternal. They started out as a, a sort of fraternal order, which is a weird thing to think about. But 100 years ago, fraternal orders were a big deal. You know, you you were either a Mason or you were a Knights of Pythias or something like that. And each one of those groups had some religious overlay. And many of them were very exclusive. It comes to they wouldn't let people of every race in or they wouldn't let women in or they wouldn't let people who weren't, you know, in a certain religion in. Um, well, tell me about the connection to Masons and the Klan, because I'm curious about that. I'm no expert on the Masons. I think Jews had formed their own organizations like the Odd Fellows yes. and the Rebecca Lodge, because some of these, uh, you know, fraternal organizations weren't necessarily welcoming to all people. But maybe I'm too harsh on the Masons. You tell me. Well, the Masons are kind of in an interesting zone here. On one hand, the Klan did a lot of their recruiting from the Masons, but it doesn't mean the Masons were inherently this racist group or even a white supremacy group. Um, what they were was, you know, a secret society, and that 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 had its own appeal, right? I mean, you know, you go through all those Masonic rituals and learn about the the various symbols and what they mean. Um, and and I think for a lot of people, that's all it was. It was, you know, it was a fun thing to be part of a secret group. And Van Sice was a Mason. Uh, you know, a number of people were Masons. What, what, what's important about that era that we don't get now is these societies were incredibly popular and they had millions of members and the Klan saw an opportunity here to represent itself as another one of those societies. And so you say, well, if you join the Masons, of course you want to join the Klan too. But the me the message becomes increasingly more toxic. It's It's about us versus them ultimately. Right. There was no television, maybe a few golf courses, City Park and Overland. But I'm thinking how people used to, or right now, hang out in men's clubs and golf courses. Yeah. But this well, was something to do. And it's kind of pre-movies, although there was one movie that you wrote about that really changed a lot in America. Yeah. Before I get to that, just sure. one more thing about the, the organizations. If you think of it as a kind of form of social networking at the time, mm -hmm. uh People who were really rich could go to country clubs, and that's where they met other elite people, right? Right. If you couldn't afford a fancy country club, you could at least afford the dues to get into, you know, the Masons or the Oddfellows or whatever. And this is where you'd go to try to drum up business and and get good advice and you know socialize and be part of something, you know, a, a sort of social network. And it's it's not that different than what we're doing now with Facebook, really. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think that was part of it. The movie you mentioned, which is very important in this whole story, too, actually came out several years before the Klan's rise, and it's called Birth of a Nation. It was the D.W. Griffith epic silent film based on a novel called The Klansman. And it, it basically romanticizes the Ku Klux Klan of the 1860s, which was this, you know, which is this terrorist organization that was running around trying to stop the Reconstruction. And... Uh, in the D.W. Griffith version, they're the heroes. They ride to the rescue of these maidens who are being threatened by, you know, former black slaves and stuff like that. It's a very, it's a very interesting film. It's also a, a tremendous piece of racist propaganda, and it had a, did a lot of damage. It became a recruiting tool for the for the Klan in the 1920s. Right, and it means that we keep finding this civil war over and over. Every time you think the old South is dead, it rises again. 
with buddies up in Idaho and yeah. Wyoming. Well, or at least the mythology about the Old South. It may not yes. actually be historically accurate, but it's it's what these people believe in. And you look at the ideology of the Klan, what they were pitching to people, a lot of it had to do with you know, a nostalgia for this kind of world that maybe never really existed, but which in their view was what the South was like before the Civil War. It's really kind of a con game. I mean, both sides of your book, the Blanchard group and uh, the John Galen Locke group, they're all kind of con guys. And when the KKK gets formed, I got a kick how you added, educated me a part of it was selling merch. Yes. Am I right? Yes. They they were, you know, the uniforms, the this, the that. You got to get this gotcha, that gotcha. And they were getting rich. Well, this is the, when I talk about what was fun in the book, this, this sort of weird uh, way these two parts of the book work together. When I first started pitching this book, I, people would, editors would tell me, I don't get this. You, you got two different stories here. You got a story about Common and you got a story about the Klan. And I said, no, they're the same story. Not just because Van Size is the one in charge of investigating these two different criminal conspiracies, but because what the client, what the what the con men were doing, and the way they operate, and the way they get people's confidence, and the way they sell them on this stuff, and then take all their money, wasn't that different from the tactics that the Klan was developing to do much the same thing. In many ways, there were some true believers in the Klan who were white supremacists, but there were also a lot of people who joined who were, I think, being conned one way or another. They were being told this would be good for business. They were being told this was a patriotic organization. They didn't necessarily understand all the hate that was involved in it. Um, and they were being dunned relentlessly for dues, for membership fees. The Klan brought in millions of dollars that enriched the people who were leading the Klan. And there was never any accountability for all this stuff. There was a lot of embezzlement. There was a lot of kickbacks. I mean, the Klan said they were a law and order group. They were taking bribes from bootleggers to let them operate. They had people on the police force. I mean, it was it was very uh, corrupt and it was uh, very hypocritical what they were doing. But it's a con game. It's about the money. You bring Denver alive. And just to go back to that tramway strike, um, the the strike busters come in and there were a lot of people who got killed. And again, that enraged man's size because perpetrators got away with it and the ringleaders were untouched. Well, and, and you could see that the DA's office was basically ineffective. It wasn't doing its job. He, he looked up the prosecution record of, their, the, of his predecessor, the guy he was running against, and it turned out this guy, this guy brought very few cases to trial, lost most of them, uh, didn't even press charges in a lot of cases, and he wondered, what the hell is this? I mean, this guy is deliberately sort of subverting the system. And I know I can have a better prosecution record. This guy, I've never worked as a DA before, but I know I can do better than that. It was like Denver's all-time version of Alex Hunter. And <laughs> we may get to Chambonet eventually. Oh, my. Guys, yeah. you know about okay, Chambonet. Yeah, but let's stick with this story 100 years ago. Yeah. So, Phil Van Size, I'd like to thank, and you mentioned his great father, and I was blessed to have a great father, and I bet you had great upbringing too, but if you see a father who's a lawyer who can do it the right way, is honest, ethical, you can make it in Denver, Colorado. You don't have to be on the take. And so Phil Van Sice saw that in his old man, right? He was an honest lawyer who made a decent living, and you can get by. You don't have to be a crook. Yeah, I, well, I, I think you have to have your priorities straight. I mean, obviously, if he was interested in money, he could have done, 
some other things with his career and maybe some sleazier things with his career that would have made him a lot more money uh, than being an honest prosecutor. But that money was not as important to him as I think he had a really a, a very strong sense of civic pride that like, I'm not going to let these guys take over my town. He was very offended personally by the idea of the Klan coming in and telling people in Denver, you know, that we don't have to respect the law, the, the, you know, the, we don't have to respect the 14th Amendment, that we don't have to treat everybody equally, that we really, there's this group that's 100% American and all these other people are not American and we should get rid of them some way or another. Um, I mean, what the Klan was doing would have disenfranchised about half the country if they had been able to accomplish their agenda. Uh, so, I, you know, he's a guy who I think really believed in the Constitution and he had his own issues with immigrants. Don't get me wrong. He was a Republican, a conservative Republican who wasn't sure that we were doing the right thing with all the people we were letting into the country. But And, and to give his bona fides in terms of being a conservative Republican, he would prosecute people uh, in murder cases and occasionally obtain and administer the death penalty. Am I right? Um I'm not sure how many. You, you wrote about that one guy yeah. got executed. Well, he had, he had one guy who who was yeah. I mean, there were a couple of people that were certainly executed while he was DA. I'm not sure how many of them he personally prosecuted, but but he didn't stop it. No, he was he was he he certainly believed in certain harsh measures for criminals. He, he there's no question that he was it a was hard. My liar. kind of guy. I yeah. don't know if you heard the other day that it was uh, Richard Donahue, one of the uh, Trump attorneys, who told him, "Hey, there's no evidence of election rigging." And he's the guy who recorded the president saying, well, just say there's a problem and the House can take it from there. And he's a great witness, but he also worked with Jack Smith. And he was talking about Jack Smith's no liberal because he got the only death penalty in New York in the last 40 years. So that's kind of a qualification. You've written about criminal justice for so long. You know, there's kind of a bright line between those who... Uh, have sought capital punishment and those who dedicate themselves to opposing it. And there are good people on both sides. I think so. And to me, Philip Van Syce, he was pro-capital punishment. Maybe I'm making that up. But Jack no, I Smith, think you're right. too. And, and, and I was, although I'm rethinking it, giving Donald Trump as the potential guy administering the death penalty. He changed a lot of my thinking about stuff. But you were making the point, I interjected by capital punishment, that Phil Van Syce was hardly your uh, woke liberal. He wasn't at all. Uh, but he did believe in, in you know, he, he had been taking an oath to uphold the law. And he so he may not even agreed with many of those laws, but he was going to uphold them. And that's where I think he's different from what we see in this sort of groupthink that we're seeing now. I mean, even in his own time, there were very few public officials willing to speak up against the Klan. And it, it hijacked his party. It took over the Republican Party. And part of the way it took over was that people, good people in the party, were not standing up and saying, we got to get rid of these guys. Because they were afraid. It was all very partisan. They were afraid, we can't criticize another Republican. That'll help the Democrats. So even people who were running against the Klan candidates in the Republican Party were reluctant to criticize the Klan. Van Syce was an exception there. He's saying, you can't let these people take over our party. We can't let these values that they're espousing be associated with our party. That's not right. And, you know, we've got to stop it. And and very few people, I think, were in that position. I mean, he was just a very refreshing voice in the wilderness, if you will, about some of this stuff. 
And we have that same war within the Colorado Republican Party right now. And it looks like there are very few Phil Van sizes to stand up to them. And that's the beauty of your book, because I knew Ben Stapleton was a Klan guy, and I knew he was a Democrat. And I knew that Clarence Morley, the former chief judge in Denver District Court, he was a Klan guy, and he was a Republican, and he was elected governor in 22, right? 24. 24. Uh, right. And and then flamed out by 26. So I thought, geez, the Klan had the Democrats, they had the Republicans. And to an extent, that was true. But through your book, I learned which party they really had their hooks in. Yeah, I mean, there were individual Democrats who were Klansmen. And there were uh, Stapleton certainly, I think, arranged for people in his Democratic machine to vote Republican for the Klansman ticket in 24. But Overall, they they really corrupted the Republican Party in Colorado and a lot of other places out west. In the South, they were much stronger in the Democratic Party, of course, because that was the mm-hmm. legacy of Dixiecrats. the Dixiecrats. Um, but you know, the the important thing was that he was trying to stop all this, and you know, they did. There were mistakes made. I don't think he, you know, I think he alienated some people who could have been powerful allies. But at one point, it's it's him and Ben Lindsay, who is on the political spectrum, is as far away from Van Size as you can imagine. It's, it's a progressive juvenile court judge. He is a woke liberal. He is a totally woke liberal. They're working together against the Klan because they both recognize that this is bad for the country and bad for their city. Um, you know, uh, which and you I know think what? Is- right now, I go around saying this: there are only two political positions now. You're either pro MAGA or anti MAGA. To me. that's what it boils down to. And that's what you're saying about back then. You're either pro-Klan and you're anti-Klan. And even though Lindsay and Van Sys disagreed about everything else, they they broke bread together on that. Well, I think they saw the dangers here. It wasn't just that this was a, you know, really obnoxious ideology. I mean, that's bad enough that they're what they're what they're really saying in terms of the white supremacy message. But it's also this idea of inserting religion into politics and and the idea that you have to be part of the right religion to be, be to be the chosen people in America. That's not what America ever was about. And you know the 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 the, the, the founding fathers knew that you had to have some idea of separation of church and state. Uh, if you didn't have that, you didn't have anything. You are a great professor of journalism. You pay attention to the Denver newspaper wars. I knew about the Denver Post, of course. I still have it sitting in my driveway. The Rocky Mountain News, I loved it. They endorsed me for Denver DA. Why wouldn't I love them? But I didn't know about the Denver Express until I read Gangbuster. And I'm amazed. Tell everybody what that little paper did. The Denver Express was the run to the litter. There were four daily papers in Denver in the 20s. Uh, and they were all compromised to some extent, except for the Denver Express, by the Klan. I mean, the Rocky Mountain News had Klan, Klansmen in management. The Denver Post was very un- erratic in its coverage of the Klan. One day it would be very obsequious to John Galen Locke, who was the the head head of the Ku Klux Klan in Colorado. And another day they would, they would try to tweak Stapleton or make fun of him or something like that. Um, But the Express was this tiny paper, didn't really even have a Sunday paper, but it was the only paper that was sort of independent enough to take on the Klan. And Van Sys recognized that. And as his 
investigation of the Klan continued, and he was sending people like Otto Moore undercover to try to follow the Klan meetings, he realized, I got to do something with all this intelligence because I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to prosecute these guys. He went to the Express and leaked stories to them, very damning stories about who was really in the Klan, what they were doing, how they were taking over the police force, how they were you know discriminating against different people, all their plans to put a Klansman in the governor's office. Um, and this was coming straight at from Van Size to Sidney Whipple, who's this Dartmouth grad who's running this little paper. And the Klan tries to haul him up in front of a grand jury, which is, of course, packed with Klansmen. And Van Size has to physically go in the room and remove Sidney from this inquisition. They were trying to set up like a star chamber with him. Gosh. And, and I don't want to slide past uh, Blanger yet. Because I was trying to understand how Denver could be this kind of town and where visitors would be taken advantage of and subjected to confidence games. But I had a guy, Bob Seidman, on recently. He's the guy who got Lindell's $5 million challenge. He was a great guest, smart as hell. But when he was 18, he went to some carnival in Philadelphia and there was some carnival game where he was trying to win, and he got so obsessed with it, he blew $800. Wow. And he had to tell his old man about it, and he's a smart guy. So smart people can get tricked into confidence games, especially without modern communications. This was dawn of a new era. People coming in to sell their agriculture, visit the big city. Right. Tell everybody what, what happened to them when uh, well, this was they, a, this at was a Union very, Station or wherever they came yeah, to This town. was a very sophisticated kind of big con, meaning it's not like, like the carnival game. You take whatever the person's got right. on them. In a big con operation, this can take weeks or months. Right. And it takes a lot of different players. If you've ever seen the movie The Sting, the kind of thing they do in there where they have a fake horse bedding parlor – and it takes several steps to get to the guy, get the sucker to bring all their money in. Right. In this thing they had going in Denver, it was known as the payoff, and it involved a fake stock exchange. So you would come into town, and you would someone would befriend you, and it would seem to be just you know someone who was also visiting and taking in the town. Nothing, nothing threatening about that. Then, quite by coincidence, the two of you would meet another man who was turns out to be some kind of stock wizard, and. Bit by bit, you would end up going to the stock exchange and watching this guy in action, and he'd place a few purchases for you. Again, you don't have to put up any money. So you're thinking, well, why not? Go ahead. Let's see how this goes. And especially if you aren't very sophisticated about the stock market. Most Americans weren't back then. You might actually believe you could double your money overnight with this stuff. And in the 20s, that wasn't that hard to believe because the stock market was going up and up and up until the crash, right? So there, this this scam unfolds bit by bit. You never think your money is at risk. Suddenly you're way up in the, you know, they owe you a whole bunch of money at the stock exchange, but they're not going to give it to you unless you prove that you have the credit to do it. So then you have to bring your money to the stock exchange. And this is, this is where it gets dicey because you think, well, all I have to do is show that I have this money and then I'm going to get my money. And then something happens, something else happens. There's one complication after another. And before you know it, you've lost all your money. Uh, and, and a lot of people who went through this scam never even realized it was a scam. They thought something legitimately had happened, and you know, some freak thing on the stock market. Um, but Blonger's group had perfected this. He had some of the top confidence artists How in the How many country. artists did he bring to town? I mean, they're talking about dozens of people because each, each, each scam involved at least three or four people. You had to have the person who roped the the mark in in the first place you had the, to have, roper. Yeah, the roper you had to have the the guy who's the stock expert who's known as the spieler 
You had to have Love the, that. You had I to would have the say, guy at the stock exchange. I would say Spieler. Spieler. And then you've got the guys at the stock exchange who was the bookmaker. And so you got at least three, four, five people operating each one. So they would work in teams. And each guy had his own role. And they were very sophisticated people. And you would never doubt that they were, you know, who they said they were. And the complications, the scripts involved in this were really amazing. So that you're totally distracted and you don't realize this is all about getting your money from you until you've lost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, which in 1920s money is a real fortune. I mean, this is like millions of dollars today. So why is Denver perfect? One, it has a lot of tourists, maybe people from unsophisticated areas. But the main thing they had in Denver is that Blonger had the cops look the other way, right? Oh, he had cops on his payroll. He knew everything that was happening. He was confident. He was so confident about the the protection arrangements he had made that when Van Sides became DA, he didn't see the problem because the cops were with him. And the DA couldn't do anything without the cops. He didn't realize that Van Sides could go around them, which is what essentially the story becomes this fascinating look at how a guy improvises when he can't trust his own police force. And so these them. victims would complain sometimes. Other other times they just licked their wounds, thought they honestly got beat. But some people would figure it out and complain to law enforcement. But if law enforcement isn't going to do anything, then what can you do? And then yeah. it had some tragic consequences that really affected Van Sy's emotions. Yeah, the reason he got so interested in Blanche, there were two reasons. One was the weird bribe that was offered right. to him. But the other was he started hearing about these suicides that had been caused by people who had these huge financial losses on the Denver Stock Exchange, which didn't exist. And so he had to figure out how this was happening. And and he began discreetly looking into Blonger's business and trying to figure out what his connection with all this was. And it took some time, but it's really a fascinating investigation. I don't want to give away too much, but it really, to me, it was very satisfying to see how he put all this together and figured out how to defeat these guys. Boy, I think I lived through a golden era in Denver Police, Denver DA's office relationships. We were united trying to fight crime. I didn't see much in the way of corruption, but I sure heard about the burglary scandals, and I've read about that from the 60s. And now I'm concerned with too much MAGA in law enforcement. That's another topic. But my God, 100 years ago when Ben Sice came in, the cops were on the take, and that's not just the reason Blonger could make it big, but it it helped pave the way for the Klan as well. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, think about it. He, he finally gets rid of these con and you think, no good, now the town can get cleaned up. But the Klan comes in. It's almost like there's a power vacuum that has to be filled. And this and it's not the same cops, but they're, the, the cops are just as tainted by the fact that many of them are Klansmen. And Stapleton appoints a Klansman as the chief of police who spends his time taking all the Irish Catholic cops off their beats and putting them in remote areas or, you know, punishing them various ways and promoting the Klansmen among the cops. So this becomes a big problem for Van Sykes because not only can he not trust them in criminal investigations, he's got a Klansman on the bench in the the, the Judge Clarence Morley. Morley. He's got Klansmen that are packing the juries. That I mean, they they figured out how to get to the yeah. They they figured out how to get to the jury commissioner. Oh, they have to. So it's like how how can you prosecute a case when the Klan has got all these all these people infiltrating the system? And we're not going to talk about Blanche anymore because you may wonder, well, what happened to the guy? How did Van Sides bring them to justice? You have to read the book because it is amazing, full of twists and turns. It's incredible. And Philip Van Sice 
in one scene, I mean, he would go to court. He'd prosecute murder cases. And at one famous hearing, he got in a fight, and that was in front of Morley. Oh, that was, in, yes, that was that was actually in the, when they were rounding up the con men. The con men, of course, had the best lawyers in town. And one of these defense lawyers, uh, when they were having bail hearings, was trying to basically paint Van Sice as a liar. And Van Sice got furious with him and actually swung on him in the courtroom. And the two of them, you know, fighting like lawyers, I guess, didn't weren't very effective. That's but, not nice. <laughs> but they did kind of mess up their starched collars and everything. <laughs> and the judge lectured them both and then things went on. But this really endeared Van Sice to some of the press, was watching him take a swing at this lawyer, who I think was somebody a lot of the press would like to have taken a swing at. So, Oh, boy, the lawyers had come in and out of it, including some Jewish lawyers. Some I've heard of, Charles Ginsburg and Philip Hornbein. But this guy introduced, uh, what's his name, Ben Lanta? Ben Laska. Ben Laska. Holy cow. I, I don't think I would have gotten along with that Jewish lawyer. Well, it's interesting because he first shows up as a victim of the Klan. He was a lawyer who was- Tell everybody about he, that first scene when you introduce Ben. He's a criminal defense lawyer. And one day he's, I mean, and he knows that he's not popular because he gets these bootleggers off all the time. He's very successful. He's very good at what he does. He's got little magic tricks he does in court and stuff like that. But one day he gets a call at his house saying there's somebody who's dying in the next block and they need to make a dying declaration to an attorney for the will. So he agrees to go there and he steps out his door and these two guys grab him. And he's brought in a car north of town, which, of course, the Brighton area was all farms, and 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 basically beaten with blackjacks by these guys telling him, you need to get out of town, we're sick of you, don't, don't represent bootleggers anymore, all this stuff. So he makes a big deal of this. He goes to the press, he criticizes the police, he says they're in on it, this is all because I'm such a zealous defender of my clients. And he looks like, you know, another one of these people that the Klan is picking on. They, 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 they had been known to beat up Catholic leaders and Jewish leaders and things like that. Um, but within a year of that, when John Galen Locke has to go to court on various matters, this is the the Imperial Wizard of the Great Klan. Klan. Um, his attorney is Ben Laska. So Laska went over to the Klan, and he was working for the Grand Dragon, just months after they had beat him up. And uh, it's 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 kind of hard to believe, but I mean, he was a weird, he was a weird kind of turn. Alan, Alan, Alan Dershowitz of his day. Yeah, he got later got disbarred over a case. And or went to some Leavenworth. other people I can think of. <laughs> he got disbarred. Good for him. And he went and he spent some time in Leavenworth. Good. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, and the guy ended up representing Morley. But let's back up to one of the stars of this show, a guy who's fascinated me for a long time because I worked right in that area. You talked about the West Side Court building. City and County building is right near Glenarm, where the Denver Athletic Club is, the Denver Press Club. And I knew that was where the KKK hung out. And I knew about this Doc Locke. Yeah. And one day I'm riding my bike around Fairmount Cemetery and I saw that he's buried there. And yes. I thought, hmm, do I want to be buried here? Because it's <laughs> up for consideration. But well, he, John Galen Locke, that guy is one formidable SOB, right? I mean, he had a lot of physical limitations. and uh, He's a fascinating figure. Yes. He's, he's a guy that you would not think would be that impressive because he's a fat little guy, very, very obese. And he was a doctor. He was a homeopath, which means that he didn't have the blessing of the Denver society. In fact, the, the Denver Medical Society would not let him join. But he had a certain charisma. And it's hard to explain, but he became the Klan leader and 
Lots of people hung on his every word and thought he was a saint and he was trying to save America for Americans and all this kind of stuff. And he is probably the most calculating, cynical uh, con man of all the Klansmen because you know some of these Klan state leaders in other states actually did buy into it. I don't think Locke ever did. Locke was a very cynical guy who was interested in power and you know, That's what's his path to power, because in his medical practice, he had Catholic yes. assistants, and he wasn't really in it so much for the bigotry, and he grew up in Denver, right? Yes, and you get the feeling he didn't really believe any of this stuff. He just thought it was useful because it was making him money. I mean, he, he enriched himself quite a bit. He got payoffs from politicians. He seemed to be always have his finger in the till of something, and he was also a very weirdly moralistic guy. I mean, he would harangue his clansmen about people who were having affairs or whether they were consorting with Jews or something like that. You know, he he was a he was a strangely repugnant guy, and yet somehow very charismatic to a number of clansmen. And he led these huge rallies that took place on Table Mesa in Golden where 5,000 or more Klansmen would show up for burning crosses and he'd give these little talks and bring people up and either praise them or humiliate them and and basically show that he was in charge of everything and that you know he could make the mayor jump if he wanted to, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and ultimately, I think as the Klan started to fall apart, he was a big part of the reason it fell apart and, he, and his decision to split off and start his own group pretty much doomed the Klan. I mean, there were these internal schisms, and he was one of them because he thought he was more important than the national organization. And Doc Locke did not just come out of nowhere. There was an organized effort out of Georgia to bring back the Klan, and it worked better in some states than others. Tell us about that miscreant Simmons who came to Colorado to make it all start happening. Yeah, the, the real rebirth of the Klan in the 1920s starts in Georgia with this guy named Joe Simmons, who was a joiner. I mean, he belonged to all sorts of fraternal orders, and he had this idea of reviving the Klan as a fraternal order. Like the Masons. Yeah, but also as a money-making enterprise for him. Yes. And so he's the one that starts this up, and it really doesn't catch on very well until after World War I. And then early in the 20s, he starts going around the country, and he's, he's found these recruiters who are basically getting a big cut for every Klansman that they sign up. And pretty soon they go from having just a few hundred people to a few thousand people to 80,000, 100,000. And pretty soon they've got between two and four million people in the Klan nationally in the 1920s. Um, And Simmons is behind that. And yes, it works better some places than others. Surprisingly, it was not as strong in the South as it was in the Midwest and the West. The The two states that had the biggest Klan influence in terms of, you know, per capita support were Indiana, which was huge, and Colorado, which, I mean, neither one of those places you associate with some big clan history. I mean, Indiana, a lot of the people who settled there came from the South, but Colorado had no history of this whatsoever. And it was surprisingly fertile ground for them, I think, because there was a lot of resentment about immigrants. There was a lot that they could cash in on. There were not many black people for them to talk about, but they they certainly there's a strong catholic minority and they they certainly targeted them they targeted jews they targeted immigrants as much as they could to sort of work out you know we're here to save you from those people i think you make the case the reason it succeeded so well for a while in colorado was doc Locke. Yes. maybe he was more educated or committed than other leaders cuz he was a workaholic always scheming of ways to 
gained power in Colorado. He was brilliant at organizing them, and he understood politics. They were, they were much better at getting at winning elections than they were at actually governing, and that was where I think he fell down. He he appointed this, you know, he he backed this guy Morley, the judge, who was basically his stooge to become the governor, but he had to be the one giving the order. So Morley had a phone installed in his office that went right to Dr. Locke. And it was like, he wouldn't make a decision without calling, <laughs> calling his mentor all the time. Um, and this got to be more of a problem when Locke ran into trouble because Locke's in the city jail, partly because stuff Van Size had done. And the governor of Colorado has to go to the jail to visit his advisor which is not great optics. It's going to be like Kevin McCarthy going to see Trump pretty soon. It might be. Same yes. sort of it, dynamic. It, it, it's not, it's not, it's not a good look for that to happen. No. And, and before Morley gets appointed or it takes office as governor, he's got to make bail for uh, Locke. Right. And this was right after, uh, well, first, there were two things that happened. Van Sice, in his last week in office, had this case drop in his lap, which was a kidnapping case involving an East High student who had been snatched out of his house and put through a shotgun wedding by Dr. Locke and his his goons. And when Vance Osiris heard about it, he said, I can't believe this. This The doctor has gotten very careless about it, you know, because he was always so cautious. He filed kidnapping charges against Locke right before he left office. He knew that this may not go anywhere because of all the Klan judges, but he he turned the case over to Ben Lindsay to start with because Lindsay had the juvenile court right. and they could have dual jurisdiction back then. Um, and so this case stayed alive for months and, and basically Locke had to post bail to get out of it. And he didn't have it. He said he didn't have any money. He always was very clever about hiding his money. And so Governor Clarence Morley has to come down to the jail with a thousand dollars. He's a bag man, you know, to, to basically bail out. Right, because it was the same election because in the history of Colorado, tell me if I'm wrong, DA races happen just like presidential races every four years. But back in the day, governors served a two-year term. So there was every two years a new governor. Morley gets elected in 22. and uh, Vance, In 24. Or, I mean, in 24, and the term of... Uh, uh, a Van Sice who only served one term was right. from 20 to 24. Right. So he was leaving office just as Morley and right. the Klan were assuming office. But he still, behind the scenes after that, I think, did many important things to try to stop but the But that's Klan. the remarkable thing. Hell, I served 16 years in the Denver DA's office. And to think about Van Sice only being there four years, one term and done. Did he ever have regrets about that? You know, I think he did. I think at different times of his life, he thought maybe I should try to run for office again, but he never really got any momentum after that. There was a point in midway through his term as DA when, in fact, there was a huge effort to draft him to run for mayor. This would have been instead of Ben Stapleton, right? Right. But he he said, no, I, I have a contract with the voters. I said I'd serve in this office four years and I'm going to do that. And and my family doesn't want me to do more. I mean, I think he wanted to spend some time with his kids before they got too old. And I don't really fault him for that. I do think that he was sort of persona non grata after after his first term because the Klan was still so powerful and nobody wanted to be reminded about the Klan years later. And he's a, he was the reminder because he's the guy that spoke up when nobody else did. And the thing you have to know about Denver, it was huge. So many of our neighbors participated in this. Yeah. Tell everybody at the height of the movement how they packed parades and auditorium arena. How big at its biggest did the Klan get? You know, in terms of actual numbers, there were probably 
thirty to 40,000 people in Denver, which was a town of about 250,000, which is quite a bit. People who had signed on the dotted line and paid their dues and been given a clan number. Right, right. And maybe another 15,000 out in the, you know, in the hinterlands or whatever. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is we know all this stuff now. The clan ledgers from Denver survived, which is very unusual. And it's because some repentant clansman, I think, gave it to a newspaper editor back in the 40s, and it went into the historical society and sat there for many years. And you wouldn't, you couldn't really use it. You couldn't really investigate it because the, the fear was a lot of these people were still alive. Until finally, one researcher got access to it and wrote a very good book about the clan in the 1980s. That was the first full-length study of the clan in Colorado. Professor Goldberg out of Utah. Professor Goldberg, and that was started opening the floodgates. So now you can go online, you can go to History Colorado and type in a name and see if your great-grandfather was a member of the Klan in Denver in the 20s. They wanted to have him. I wish I could talk to my grandpa, who was a lawyer in the 20s at the Sims building. And in fact, he apparently hosted some card games in his law office and some dice games. That was sort of common back in the day, wasn't it? <laughs> anyway, uh probably for Jewish lawyers who couldn't get in the other games. Right. I don't know. But I wonder about the effect of the Klan to see all those hooded people walking down downtown streets or to pack the auditorium arena where I played basketball and watched the Rockets and the Nuggets play. It's just unbelievable to me to think about that a hundred years ago. Well, it's it's it, it really went so far. I mean, it was it really got normalized in a lot of ways. I mean, you think this? We look at these pictures and we're, we're so chilled by them. To them, it was no big deal. I mean, there are pictures of like these guys out at the speedway in their clan robes, you know, like driving roadsters. There are pictures uh, from the Lakeside Amusement Park. They had a big picnic there. Over fifty thousand people showed up. And, you know, it's like the Klan was seen as this social organization. And it's like, it's their, you know, that was a way of trying to soft pedal it or make it seem more acceptable. And they, they kept doing that one way or another. They really wanted to make it people see this is this is no big deal putting on this robe, you know, and, and, and not sell you explicitly as much what it really represented. OK, let's talk about the good guys, because Van Sys realized he couldn't really work with the cops on a lot of things. The chief of police appointed by... Uh, Stapleton was Cavendish, right? He was... Uh, Candlish. Candlish, who was a Klan guy right. through and through. So he had to find other people to help him. And he found some civic leaders and he organized a meeting at 920 West Colfax. I know that address because I worked at the yes. West Side Court building. Yes. And he had a famous meeting of do-gooders. It was supposed to be a sort of secret, but the Klan got wind of it. Tell everybody about that scene. It gives me chills having worked in that building. Yeah, no, it's 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 hard to believe now. And then this building is right at Spear and Colfax. Everybody right. should know where it is yes. on the south side. Of yes, the yes, right, right there by Calma. Um, basically, Van Sys, after he saw them hijack the Republican primary, was trying to set up an alternative slate of candidates for the fall elections, trying to stem off as much as he could this Klan takeover that was going on. Um, and so he organized a meeting at the courthouse. He wanted to get some of these people on board and get them involved because they were going to have public appearances and try to basically expose what the Klan was doing. Um, and of course, Locke had his own secret spies everywhere. So Locke knew all about this organization practically as soon as Van Sys did. 
And so when Van Size's people show up at the courthouse, there's hundreds of Klansmen lining the sidewalk going into the courthouse. And they don't stop these people from going in, but they're calling them out by name, like, we know it's you, you know, and are you sure you want to go in there? And a lot of people were dissuaded from going in. I mean, they were just intimidated. Uh, a couple of dozen did go in. Van Size had the meeting with them. And by the time he leaves after midnight, everybody's gone except the Klansmen who are waiting for him outside. And I believe that if not for the fact that the firehouse next door had a bunch of Catholic employees, the fire department not fall into the Klan the same way the police department did, that it, they might have done something very drastic to Van Size right there. Instead, he ended up in a car chase with them and got away with them from them, and later talked to a guy who said that basically they were planning to kidnap him and maybe castrate him that night. Um, but after that, he carried a gun everywhere. Now, uh, for people worried about violence, and I do, and I hate to think about people retaliating against prosecutors, all of that. The nice thing about the Blanche gang and the Klan, and we talked about Ludlow and the tramway strike, there were deaths there. Yeah. But by and large, thank God it wasn't too violent, right? Well, that whole incident I just described was not characteristic of the Klan. Right. I mean, just like the beating of Ben Lasco, that was not a characteristic thing. In Colorado, they were surprised. Except, except for them wanting to instill fear. Right. Well, they, they definitely wanted to intimidate people, but they also, I think, Locke realized if you get into a shooting war with these people, it's not going to work because he had seen that happen in some other states where the Klan was much more violent. Mm -hmm. They became pariahs. I mean, the, the, the federal government would move in or the state government would move in and outlaw their meetings or make it illegal to appear in public in a robe and hood. That kind of thing. California did that. Texas did that. Louisiana did that. Because those were places where they got very violent very fast. The, the Colorado Klan was more subtle. They really, they wanted to intimidate you. They wanted to, um, you know, impress you with their patriotism or whatever. But they didn't want to get into these ugly incidents where they're like taking somebody out on a ride or tar and feathering them or beating them up, stuff like that. So they, they under Locke, they were much more reliant on other things. That that whole incident where they were actually physically threatening Van Size was uncharacteristic. They were much better at sort of shouting people down, disrupting them, distracting them, spreading weird lies about them, you know, conspiracy theories, whatever. The Jews are trying to take over the country. The Catholics are really they're 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 loyal to the Pope. They're not loyal to the America. And, you know, they really want to take over America for the Catholics. You know, they would spread these stories, and and this I think they thought was a more effective tactic than strong arm stuff. I love the shout down at the auditorium arena, oh, yeah. and you discovered some words that were spoken by Van Sice. Gosh, you have a lot of original source material, and I can tell because I've read other interviews that this project you really got excited to make these discoveries well I'm, I'm i love archival reporting i mean i love going back and looking at history but the thing that really makes that work is when you come across these original documents not the secondhand sources the van size speech had always been reported secondhand because no one heard it i mean he was at this he was at this meeting and he was trying to get this speech he, 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 just as and and i'll probably get this wrong but he was hoping to have a favorable crowd, a big audience. He had organized it, and he was going to talk about how the Klan was horrible for the Republican Party and horrible for America. And the Klan got there early, got all the seats, and they tried to drown him out. 
Yeah, this was with the collusion of city officials, but they basically packed the audience with Klansmen. He was he was expecting to address a general audience that you know about the election. This is the election coming up. This is stuff you need to know. He had a sort of PowerPoint set up with the lantern slides where he was going to show them Klan documents and expose that the Klan candidate for governor was a Klansman. That's Clarence Morley, who'd always denied being a Klansman, that Stapleton was a Klansman, and so on. And he got shouted down, and it got, got increasingly tense, but he stayed there for five hours, uh, facing down this howling mob that was basically not interested in anything he had to say and was trying to disrupt him. Um, but, you know, this was <laughs> what I found later that was so exciting archivally when I was doing the research on this was the original typescript, his, his speech which no one ever got to hear, and which uh, pieces of it are in that chapter. Was he anal like me writing everything down? He's he's very meticulous, yeah. And and he had a great speech prepared about, you know, what does it mean to be an American? And who gets to decide who's, an, who's a real American and who isn't? And, uh, you know, these people can't come in and do this. And in, again, this idea of them injecting into American political debate a religious issue that has no business being there you know, in terms of them, sort of Christian nationalist aspect of the Klan. And these guys would try to drown him out, and he came up with tactics to get in a sentence? Well, he was a, he had been a star debater at East High School, and again at CU. So he knew a little bit about debate, but this was different. <laughs> I mean, you don't get shouted down in a, in a real debate competition. So he, he had various theatrical flourishes that he had used in the courtroom, sometimes to get the jury's attention. He would, you know, he would pretend to be turning his back on them or, or just thought of a witty remark and they would shut up for a minute. Well, then he would go on with his speech or he would put up a new lantern slide and they'd shut up for a minute while they're trying to figure out what they're looking at. So bit by bit, he tried to get his speech out. It just took him several hours because most of the time they were shouting him down. The guy had a lot of tenacity and he had great assistants like the guy I ended up working with, O. Otto Moore. And you had so many great parts to your book, but my God, I knew Justice Moore, you write about how he came back at the end of his career to work for Dale Tooley, who hired me into that West Side court building. So when I started in June 1, 1980, for a couple of years, I got to work with the great O. Otto Moore. Well, he, he worked till he was like 89, right? Something like and that. He and then he, died, and he died at like 95 yes. or something like that. Yeah, Otto Moore was a young assistant DA working for Van Sys. And one of the things Van Sys had him do was go out to try to write down license plate numbers of people going out to the uh, meetings in Golden, the Klan meetings. And this was Monday night on Table Mountain in the summer. They would draw 5,000 people. Yeah, and the traffic would be backed up Colfax all the way. And, you know, they're all getting off at the first exit to where Table Mesa Mountain is. And, of course, nothing, there was nothing in between that and Denver back in those days. Right. Uh, and Otto Moore actually had his confrontation with the Klan where they picked up his Model T and carried it off the road and, and basically pushed it with a Stutz Bearcat way up the hogback and said, don't try to come back this way. Um, but he had other run-ins with them. He, he tried to try a rape case in front of Judge Morley, who was as crooked as the day is long, and the rapist was a Klansman. So Morley did everything he could to frustrate that prosecution, which is, again, I mean, this is the Klan, which is supposed to stand up for womanhood and all this stuff, right? But when it was one of their own, they were very protective. Again, the huge hypocrisy of this organization. Gosh, you described that so well. And I've told this story before, but I have to tell it to you that one day when I'm a young deputy DA, O. Ottomore yells out, Silverman, get over here. And I'm like, oh, my God. Did I screw up a brief? What did I do? 
and he was being playful. He said, if it wasn't for your grandfather, Harry, I would have been number one at the Westminster School of Law. Wow. <laughs> so I went to uh, Westminster School of Law, the predecessor to DU, with my grandfather, Harry. So I feel like I'm pretty old now to be part of a book, 100 years old, O. Otto Moore. He was, he was a hero because he was a young Protestant guy, South High, and he had fought in World War I, and he was prize pickings for the Klan. And they were really pissed that this bright young Protestant wouldn't That's go right. on the take with them. Well, and in fact, he stayed in the DA's office after Van Sy's left and continued to fight the Klan. And if, I mean, you think about things like Social Security. We've always had that, right? He was instrumental in getting the Social Security Act passed. Uh, he was he worked very hard on that uh, from Denver, and uh, he's, that's one of the things in his resume that is overlooked. But uh, what a really interesting guy, and did span these generations going back to the twenties. And it's so interesting to hear his voice. The Denver Public Library has some great tapes that were made. I'm sure yes, you, you can, relied you can, on you them. Can, you can listen to this stuff online. There are oral histories from Otto Moore, from Forbes Parkhill, who was a reporter for the Post who watched the Klan rise and was there that night on stage when Van Sys was getting shouted down. Uh, there are other great oral histories that I, I consulted for the book. And it's great to hear these people, even 40 or 50 years after the fact, recalling these moments with Van Sys. I always think about the Denver Public Library downtown being... Uh, inaugurated in 1955, the year I was born. I've been thinking about that because Emmett Till was killed in 55 as well. So many of these events happen. And growing up in Denver, I think about certain buildings and I wonder, is the history good or bad at this place? One of them, the Brown Palace Hotel. Oh, yeah. I know the Beatles stayed there and I've been in there many times for many occasions, but I I have a bad feeling that it was part of this clan. It was it was a place it was a well when the clan first came to town there was a meeting at the Brown Palace which is where Simmons first made his pitch to some of the locals who would be the original clansmen and when Locke when they when they won the governor's office they had a big celebration at the Brown Palace. But the Brown Palace was also a place the con men used. I mean it just was a local institution, right? I mean that was where they would go to pick up some of these rich tourists from out of town who were just staying at the Brown and say, hey, do you want to go see the sights? Or uh, I'm, I'm taking a ride of scenic beauty up in the mountains. Do you want to join me? Something like that. That's where they would go recruiting for their marks. Then there's another building where Doc Locke lived. He lived at the Denver Athletic Club. I always go down that street on Glenarm and I think, hmm, now the DAC Maybe it was just installed in me as a kid that they don't really like Jews there. Since then, I've had Marshall Fogel on, and when he was a deputy DA, he helped integrate the DAC. Oh, really? And then Gary Jackson, as a black guy, he joined the DAC. Both of them have been my guests. But still, to me, the DAC, John Galen Locke lived there. The Klan controlled the jury pools out of an office on Glenarm. Right. Am I right to be worried well, it's about all, that? Well, it was all one building. That, and it wasn't the DAC, but it was where the DAC is now. Right. I mean, it was next door to what was the DAC back then. Um, and it was Locke's office and his residence, and it was Klan headquarters. <laughs> it was all those things. He had a secret room, supposedly had to push a button for the door to open, and he had a little throne in there that he could sit on 
with his minions beside him and his big dogs and, and you know, have hearings with beseeching clansmen or whatever. Um, but he also kept a lot of weaponry in there. I found out a lot of interesting stuff reading affidavits from some of his disillusioned followers about all the crazy stuff he had. And his dogs. <laughs> and his dogs, yes. Yeah, at Dalmatian and Great Dane. Yeah, at Dalmatian and Great Dane. And, um, you know, he could be very impressive sitting there with his hood on and all this stuff. I mean, he had, he had his robe specially tailored that didn't like make him look quite as fat as he really was. Um, you know, he's a ludicrous figure in some ways, but he had a lot of influence and a lot of power. And some of it was all this hoodoo around the rituals he set up with the clan. You know, people want Do you that get that feeling at the Denver Athletic Club? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I haven't been in the Denver Athletic Club in a long time, but I never really got that And Norm feeling. Early was a member of the DAC, too. So I lived through some Denver DA history, but you listened to my show last week with Bradley Onishi about uh, white Christian nationalism yes. infecting the Republican Party, especially since Goldwater. Uh, did you agree with that, or do you know? Well, I, I'm not sure I agree with it totally. I, I cer Certainly what he talks about when, you know, in the, in the late 70s, the, the Carter-Reagan race, which, 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 in which religion played so many different roles and there was a lot of this rising moral majority tone of that stuff, I think that I really see that as a, uh, as a watershed moment for this stuff. Um, but it, it comes and goes. And I think to the extent that extremism always has to find a way to soft pedal certain things or downplay certain things in order to get into the mainstream. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where I find the clan experience the most instructive was that they formed all these interesting alliances. They had, they had the evangelicals on their side. They would go to the temperance groups, even though secretly they were taking kickbacks from bootleggers. Um, to some extent, they they tried to promote themselves as feminists, which is another weird. You don't think about the clan, and they had way. a huge woman population. They had a whole auxiliary of the female women of the Ku Klux Klan, and they were very powerful in their own right. I mean, they 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 did charitable work. They handed out baskets of food. There's a famous picture of their mascot, who was this baby they adopted and dressed up in clan robes. It's a very spooky looking thing. Um, so yeah, I mean this is going to the normalization process, but again, it's a way of of saying, look, we're not we're not just these wackos off on the horizon. We're we're the true Americans. We're we stand for family. We stand for you know upright moral values yeah, for the American flag for Christianity. And Christianity is somehow tied up in all this, as if as if Jesus was you know favored America was a flag waving you know Protestant or something right. like that. I guess the common theme is a right-wing group using the flag and Christianity yeah. to try to gain power. Yes, right? yes, and the patriotic appeal really shouldn't be underestimated because that's that's a lot of what they're saying is that America has strayed from what it was supposed to be and we can bring it back. There's a lot of nostalgia in that. There's a lot of sort of implied or coded stuff about all these other people who have come here who aren't really welcome. You know, who aren't real Americans like us, you know, that that kind of thing. And this is this is something that Van Size could have gone along with, but I think was very offended by, you know. I almost think that you can be accused of having a coded book right here with Kingbuster. And you yeah. know why? Because it ties right into what's going on with America right now. And we can say Trump is Blonger or he's Doc Locke. 
We can yeah. make other parallels. Jack Smith is Phil Van Sice. It's almost like you wrote this book anticipating this very moment that Trump faces his biggest indictment for the J6 riot by January 6th, uh, by Jack Smith. Maybe not for the riot, but for the insurrection, the plot to not give peacefully up power when he knew right. he had lost. I mean, Come on, that's all contrived. You timed it, didn't it? You knew <laughs> I, I wish I could take credit happen. for that. I think, I think it's a matter of just you get into the past deeply enough and you see a bit of ourselves. I mean, it, it's not like the world doesn't follow some of the same forces over and over again. But exactly 100 years, the well, consequential election of 1924, 2024 looming. Do you yeah. see all the parallels? What do you make of what's going on right now? What lessons does your book provide? Here's what I want to think, because I'm an optimist. I think you showed that America occasionally goes through these spasms of bigotry and losing our mind a little bit, kind of like a human. We lose our way, and then we have to course correct. That's what happened 100 years ago in Colorado, especially we need to have this trauma and then become a better nation for it. This is... I hope the flickering flames of racism and uh, tyranny and autocracy. And does your book show that? I mean, Colorado went on to a brighter day thanks to Phil Van Sides and others. Can I take that positive message? I, I think that's definitely there. Um, I think it's mixed. There's, there's, there's certainly, and, and, and you know, to, to not just to credit Van Sides, there were a lot of other people fighting the Klan one way or another. They weren't always very well coordinated. But um, for the black population in Denver, for example, did some amazing things. Uh, uh, Clarence Holmes with the uh, NAACP, uh, they they basically decided to have the national NAACP meeting in Denver in 1926 as a direct repudiation of the Klan, which I thought was a very brave thing to do. Um, but I think there are always people who will step up in situations like this, and sometimes they'll be reviled or forgotten later. I mean, in Van Zeiss's case, he was almost like erased from history. Uh, but uh, we it's still up to us to sort of figure out where to go from here. And, and you know, I think Denver did take a different path after all of this. And some of it is Van Seist. Some of it is the city just getting tired of these scams <laughs> one way or another, you know, whether it's the Klan or, or the con men. It's like, you know, it's we're better than this. We can do a better job than this. And, we, and somehow we get back on track. But first, the truth had to come out in courts of law. And the other optimistic thing about these bad guys because Doc Locke, Blonger, at their core, they were bad people and they self-destructed. They made foolish mistakes. They got taped. This was the advent of being able to tape people. And just like Donald Trump tapes himself, Blonger got taped by Denver's uh, DA, Philip Van Sice, who used this technology for the first right. time. What a great party of your book that is. <laughs> it's like the dawn of the age of electronic surveillance. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's true that these, these people's own egos and their own defects, their personality defects, especially if you're like a sociopath, it's a big problem at some point, uh, ultimately catch up with you. The clan, a lot of the wounds that it, that it suffered from were self-inflicted. It was, it was too much greed, too much arrogance, too many, too many lies being told all the time that they couldn't sustain and by the time they got power, they were already being exposed as this sort of hollow shell that they were. And, and you know, it, it, 
Some people made money off it, but it collapsed very quickly. And there, there were, the fact, that I, what I find encouraging is I don't think there were a lot of true believers in Colorado. There were people who were opportunistic and tried to use it for their own gains. But when it became apparent that it wasn't going anywhere, they dumped it so quickly. They were not, you know, it was not these these religious right people. Who, right, but the dumping came as these people not only imploded, they went to prison. Yes. And prosecutors put them behind bars That's with juries stamping their approval. That's the way I think this needs stand in America, too. I take it as just a show of optimism that good can prevail over evil, and we better do it again. And I'm hoping Jack Smith is like Phil Van Syce. Well, yeah, you want to be have someone who can marshal the evidence the same way. That's true. What Van Syce did with the con men in court against all odds. I mean, in fact, getting them in the court in the first place, get, making sure they didn't flee on bail, getting a jury seated, going through the longest trial in Colorado history, and getting convictions all the way down the line, that was a masterpiece of prosecution. And it, and you want to see someone who can put together a case as convincing, as powerful as that was. That was another unbelievable... I don't want to give it away, because the trial of Blanger and uh, the way Van Size puts it together and... Uh, uh, although there are so many complications, you have to read it. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have have this. It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Gosh. Gangbuster is way up there in terms of my favorite books ever, and I think you can understand why. Now I go in a different direction with Alan Prendergast, and a lot of it has to do with my own personal life, 
the murder of Jean Benet happening right after I ran for Denver DA and lost in November 96. Jean Benet killed December 96. And then Peter Boyle's calling me shortly thereafter to be a guest on his show. And soon enough, I was on a lot of national shows. Rivera Live covered it big time. I was on CNN, MSNBC. Geraldo was on CNBC with Rivera Live. Sometimes Peter Boyles would be on that show too. But I was the lawyer and I offered some criticisms of the lack of any sense of urgency in what I saw as political campaigning. And I would talk about it with Peter Boyles. I was a free agent at that point unconstrained by being a chief deputy DA anymore, and he gave me lots of opportunities through the years. I'd get woken up early in the morning. I learned to sleep with Peter Boyles on in the background because he would say my name, call in, this, that. And then I became part of the radio team back in the heyday when they paid big money for drive time. Kaplis and Silverman on 630K, how now they pay... Uh, some hosts pay their own way. But Peter Boyles didn't because he made money for K-How in the mornings. And then at 7.10, he made money with all his sponsors. He came over after he flashed out of K-How. After he left K-How, then we left K-How. Dan Kaplis went to 7.10. And I went to do a Saturday morning show at 9 a.m. that was super successful for over five years when I spoke my mind as the most liberal guy at that radio station, a Salem station, but there was Peter Boyles, who was not a Christian, just like I'm not a Christian, and he would talk about that, and he would support gay rights and other progressive causes, but in the end, gosh, the dude fell for Donald Trump and fell from hard, and he really didn't get off the Trump train until the lawsuit started flying against his best buddy, Randy Corcoran. Remember, they were part of a motorcycle group together, and they would have each other on various shows, and Randy Corcoran brought Joe Altman, Joe Altman of Conservative Daily on the mainstream AM radio, and this was mid-November 2020 when that Stop the Steal and Dominion Stole It bullshit flowed out of Colorado and Joe Altman got two softball interviews from Peter Boyles, courtesy of Randy Corcoran, who was working with Sidney Powell. And then, holy cow, Corcoran kept digging, and Boyle saw that he was going to get sued. He's been through that. KNUS was going to get sued for putting on Altman, spreading the lies. Altman got sued for forcing Eric Coomer to leave Denver and sure enough, Corcoran did get sued. So did 710 KNUS. But Peter Boyles escaped wisely, who wants to get sued personally. Plus, I think just as Peter Boyles realizes pro wrestling is not legitimate, he was part of it, but he didn't buy it. And he doesn't buy the big lie. He's a little too smart for that, and even he won't go that far. And now he he called out the big lie, and then he capitulated. I put on that show, just look up Boyle's capitulation. He told Randy Corcoran, hey, I'll tell you how we will handle this going forward. 
we just won't talk about it. And that lasted for a while. And on his Saturday morning show, yeah, now Pete Boyle's age 80, has my old Saturday morning slot. And he's got about the same number of advertisers I did, except he advertises for Dan Kaplis, who spread the big lie on his show, who while Joe Altman was spreading one part of it on KNUS, there was Jenna Ellis on 630K, how with my old radio partner, Dan Kaplis, spreading the stop the steal white Christian nationalist lie to keep Trump in power. And it's interesting that now Boyles would call out the big lie, but Dan Kaplis, he's still down with Donald Trump. But Peter Boyles, in all fairness, is not. He's smarter than that. And he's back to hosting in the mornings because George Brockler has this show now. George Brockler, who I did a ton of radio with and has shown his stripes, including Colonel Stripes. He's in the U.S. Army, and that was an excuse. He would tell me, I can't criticize Trump on the air. I'm in the chain of command, and I respected that to a degree. But oh my gosh, that Saturday before he lost to Phil Weiser the first time, he poured out his heart about the deficiencies of Trump and how it cost him this election. People who could not vote Republican. And Brockler is hardly the biggest Trump supporter, but he said many times he'll vote for Trump over Biden. Now, Boyles today, filling in for Brockler on a Friday, said that he just wouldn't vote for either of them. Way to go. Yeah, just vote present. Won't take a stand between Biden and Trump, but he does recognize Trump committed the worst constitutional violation of all time. But it's kind of part of that white Christian nationalist mindset that Bradley Onishi described on episode 158 that says you have to ridicule Joe Biden. And I think that's a shame because Biden's a Catholic guy from that part of the world that Peter Boyles is from when he used to be a Catholic. But now he's an atheist, or I don't know what he is anymore. He doesn't really come to the defense of gay people anymore. He's changed. And when I got crumbed out of there, he took the side of Randy Corbin, who made up outrageous lies that I had pre-planned everything with Brian Stelter from CNN. Honestly, QAnon could not have done better, but Peter Boyles, he echoed it. He hosted it, and he slammed me over and over as I departed the Trump train. He said vicious things about me. He told Harvey Steinberg, get rid of Silverman. He attacked me in my profession, and I think I understand why. Because Peter's just not a great guy. But he did great things for me. And on Friday mornings, I would go in and I'd co-host an hour with him. And if I was there today as he hosted, I'm recording this on Friday afternoon. I've got his podcast. Boy, could I have contributed. He was with my old pal Dick Wadhams. Wadhams brought... Uh, Wayne Allard over the finish line, Strickland v. Allard, 1996, same time as Silverman v. Ritter for Denver DA. Those were the days. I've been knowing Dick Wadhams and his beautiful wife for a long time. I should probably try to get him on my show because he's taken a real bold stand against Donald Trump, and he's like Philip Van Sys trying to save the Republican Party from these schmageggies. 
You know, you're going to hear Steve Dace use the Yiddish word schmuck, which means a penis. So he doesn't really use it the right way. But what can you expect from a 400-pound guy from Iowa? How do I know his weight? Because he talked with his good buddy Randy Corcoran on 710 KUS as Corcoran filled in for Brockler. And I want you to hear that. That's mid-May of this year. So let me do my co-hosting job with Peter Boyles and see if you like the product. I think you will. And then after we have that interlude, we will get back to Alan Prendergast because I bring up Boyles a lot as we discuss Jean Benet Ramsey, her death, my entanglements with Boyles and 710 KUS. In other words, we get off the topic, which is gangbuster. We get back to it toward the end of the Alan Prendergast interview as well. But to understand what's going on in this exciting week where Trump faces justice and Jack Smith is doing his thing, and we learn about Mar-a-Lago and the treachery and the obstruction of justice, and Waltine Nada flying from Bedminster back to Palm Beach to take care of dirty business, it's just like the Watergate plumbers. And it's a comedy Sort of like Gangbuster is fun to read because the good guys are going to win. I'm convinced of it. Peter Boyles is off the Trump train, but does he really introspect about his being in the front car of the Trump train for so long? Voted for him twice, defended him after January 6th. That second insurrection impeachment, Peter Boyles came on air and said, They're going after him because they really want to go after you, the listeners to 710 KUS. He said that, that kind of unbelievable cult logic that Donald Trump is dying for your sins. But Boyles is off that train now. Here we are at the end of July, the last Friday in July in this summer of consequences, And I want to be fair to Peter Boyles, who gave me a lot of breaks in this world. I'm sorry he's, in the end, down with white nationalism, whatever you want to call Tom Tancredo and Pat Buchanan and the American firsters and the people who don't want to fight in Ukraine, the people who think, you know, maybe we need white guys in charge. Definitely not Jewish guys. Definitely not Barack Obama. Not Joe Biden, who is VP to Obama, and definitely not Kamala Harris. Anyway, that's why I'll never be pals with that guy again. It's kind of defined by Alan Prendergast's great story about Phil Van Sice, who didn't have a lot of friends, as he realized how many Klan members were around him. At KNUS, my old producer, Kirk Whitland, who Peter Boyles praised and had on his show after I was told I'm done because I was ripping Donald Trump on the air. And then Kirk Whitland is called this witness against me, and then it comes out like 10 months later that the guy is a neo-Nazi and even 710 KUS had to fire him. And Peter Boyles had him on saying he's a fine man, a brave man, a great producer, I've had those shows, and during this show, you'll hear Peter Boyle say, oh boy, 
Chinese men uh, hung up on me, and I got some threats, and nobody's apologized. I'd like to... I'd like to get Peter Boyles or anybody at Kenya West to be the first to apologize for them assigning a neo-Nazi to work with me for three and a half years. Huh? Anyway, we can let bygones be bygones, but I want to do one more show with Peter Boyles because I could really help him. Because as usual, he's behind the times. He says Rudy Giuliani is flipping on Trump. That's stupid. That's why he needed me for Jean Benet analysis. Rudy can't flip. He said too many bullshit things. Guy does a podcast and a daily radio show on WABC, which puts on this crap. You can't believe a word he said, and he's the guy who went after Marie Ivanovich in Ukraine. That misanthropic prick Giuliani, you think they're going to give him a deal? And yeah, he probably went in and tried to drunkenly talk his way out of trouble, but that can't happen. Maybe he will testify, but he's got to plead guilty. There's no way Giuliani gets immunity. And what about Jenna Ellis, especially down in Georgia? Bonnie Willis letting loose. Anyway, back to Boyles. He likes organized crime too much, too much. He kind of roots for the mob boss, respects them like Russell Buffalino, who he will talk about, which is weird. That's why he loved Trump. Some people like authoritarianism. Some people like rule by mob, by violence, by fear. Some people are attracted to those stories. I watch organized crime stuff, and I say, I'd like to be Phil Van Sice. I'd like to be the guy who stops this. Unfortunately, I had a job that let me participate to some degree, although the gangs I fought were more the Crips and the Bloods, which were really hurting Denver back in the late 80s and the 90s when I had some power and I was doing my thing in Denver District Court. So Rudy Giuliani, who was a prosecutor and a role model back in those days, can you believe it? We all looked up to him. I'm not going to speak for everybody, but he was the most famous prosecutor in America. And he came out on Twitter, and Boyle's probably not on Twitter just as well. And apparently Dick Bottoms, he was a little more cautious about Giuliani, but Giuliani put out this sound right now, which said, I didn't admit anything. And he uses the phrase, assuming arguendo, And he uses it the wrong way, but he makes the point that he's just trying to seek a strategic advantage in this lawsuit by two black women, Ruby and Shay, mother and daughter, who got picked on by Giuliani and Trump. Why? Because they're black. They're in Atlanta. All the picking on, all the claims of the big lie was about big African-American cities Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta, Milwaukee, you get the drift. We all do. It's part of their white supremacy. The other side cheats when we really are the cheaters ourselves, and that's Giuliani. Giuliani told us yesterday, it's not on with Boyles, and I'm going to reference it as I co-host this show, but give a listen to Rudy Giuliani 
taking back any admission made in a civil court pleading in Georgia. Fake news correction. Number one, Giuliani is cooperating against Trump. Untrue. Giuliani is telling the truth, which is that Trump is entirely innocent. Fake news number two. Giuliani admitted that he lied. No. Uh, Giuliani, in a lawsuit, in order to reach the merits of the lawsuit, didn't contest the earlier portion of it with a clear statement that that was no admission that it was true or false. Happens all the time in lawsuits. It's called admission arguendo. And of course, only the most dishonest and cheapest of reporters deliberately misunderstand it. So let's make it clear. I have not admitted that I lied at any point. I haven't. And of course, I'm not cooperating against Donald Trump because there's nothing to cooperate about. The man is innocent and they're framing him. So here we go. This is Peter Boyles on Friday morning, July 28, 2023, by force of habit and because I like to listen as a former expert in the field and still practicing it as a podcast host, I can book great guests, and I like to see what others do, and perhaps I'll hear somebody interesting that I want on my show or that I want to react to. So I tune in to George Brockler, and usually it's too boring. I move on to whatever. I mean, classical music is better than that. But Peter Boyles was hosting, and he had Dick Wadhams on, and immediately I heard him say something about nobody's apologized to me. So I went back to the podcast and I decided like I used to do, I don't know, we did it like 20 to 40 times through the years. I would co-host an hour with him on a Friday morning. I would fill in for Dan Kaplis and we would do a together hour. And a lot of people, including Dean Singleton, loved it. Bonniewell would call in and we'd go to war talking about our Saturday shows George uh, Brockler's show just isn't the same. My God, he had Jeff Hunt fill in. That guy is the poster child for white Christian nationalism, and he's a bigwig and Colorado Christian. When I first met him, he was Mitt Romney's guy in Colorado, and I thought he was an okay dude, but he is the kind of guy described by Bradley Onishi last week, episode 158. But 159 is super fine, and it features Peter Boyles, who had some energy this morning because he decided, fuck it, I'm going to talk about Donald Trump. He's on the ropes, and this guy is Steve Dace. Steve Dace, who is on with Glenn Beck, the Blaze Network. Woo-woo, that's big. Anyway, he's based in Iowa, and by his own admission, you will hear it because I'm going to play a sound of Randy Corcoran filling in mid-May for George Brockler and bringing on Steve Dace to say, I don't know, the Durham report showed that Barack Obama and Biden are guilty. Everybody should have been prosecuted, but the deep state this. It's crazy talk. But Dace, he picked up on Giuliani's admission in the Atlanta pleading, and he probably didn't hear the retraction that you just did And he lost his lunch, and Peter Boyle said, ah, another defector, and the best buddy of Randy Corcoran, because the only way Steve Dace came to the attention of Peter Boyle's ever is through his best buddy, 
back in the day, Randy Corcoran. And he wonders why Days won't come back on with him because there's a war between Boyles and Corcoran. Corcoran's getting sued by Eric Coomer for the big lie. And Peter Boyles is a witness against him. This litigation is moving forward. And Boyles always confesses he's muzzled on the subject. But I'm not, and I'm going to be part of his show today. Here's the way it started, the 7 o'clock hour. This is fun. I'm Peter Boyles. Good morning. George is in the military, and I'm sold out of the country. It's Friday morning, July the 28th, 2023. Good old 710 KNUS, Denver's talk station. Our phone number, of course, 303-696-1971. The weather, you heard it, 95 the high today, 95 Saturday, 97 on Sunday, and 93 next Monday. I get to come back here tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. and go do it again. I'm going to play this for you. We're going to get a drop from Dick Wadhams. We'll go back into lots of open lines. There's a radio talk show host in the the family that we work for in Salem by the name of Steve Dace, D-E-A-C-E. And he used to do our show all the time. And, like, it was always interesting. It's like so many things that happened in the last two and a half, three years. People quit talking to us or wouldn't come on the show or the things we used to cooperate with. And suddenly... You know, I was um, I was a leper without bells, as they said. And so Dace, who has been this huge Donald Trump, the election was stolen supporter, on his show on Wednesday, it blew. And I just feel so relieved that here's somebody else that looks at the truth for the first time. And we'll play Dace. And we'll see what happens to Dace's career next. It's one of the things that Bill and I talked about. But it focuses on Giuliani, but he focuses on himself. And he does use these terms, cult. And we've said this, that it's a, and we, he uses the term Marx, which we've used as well. So Dace, of course, well, he speaks for himself. Uh, Billy, if you would. We are going to the mattresses for these people. We are offering them more accommodation more chances than we'd offer our own family members, for goodness sakes. And for what? To have Rudy Giuliani go down to Georgia and admit that he lied? Have Jason Miller tell the January 6th commission, yeah, we all knew it was BS. What? What? What is this? Some of you don't like it when I use the cult word, but when you like being treated like a schmuck and ask for more, that is a cult. I'm the mark. I'm the sucker. I want to be such. And I resent the person who tries to get me out of that. Those are marks of groupthink, frankly. How many people in this audience sent money to stop the steal three years ago? How many shows did I waste your time talking about this three years ago? How many? I still have not recovered between the election fraud and COVID. I probably have the smallest Facebook following of any major show in this entire industry. I will routinely post things on Facebook, get like two or three comments. It's like Facebook is like, we won't ban you because then you'll just you'll, you'll whine about it and, and generate a bunch of publicity. So we'll just make it that no one sees your material at all. Why? Because I went to the mattresses on COVID and the election fraud issue. Only to have Rudy Giuliani say, yeah, I was lying. And Jason Miller say, oh, we knew it was all BS. All the best people, Steve. He's emotional here. Email me.
710 KNUS, good morning, everyone. Let us go to the... To me, Craig Silverman, thanks for calling, Peter, and tell Billy thanks. And even though you guys were at the center of that conspiracy against me, now that you're off the Trump train, well, I want to work with you. Congratulations on seeing the light and highlighting that Steve Dace has seen the light as well. Salem is a bad group, but you can't put Dace on Salem. I think he works for Glenn Beck, but you've had your encounters with him, Peter, and you don't think much of him. I think they want to sell survival gear. And I'm pretty sure Steve Dace was brought to you by Randy Corpin, and even though you can't say his name anymore because you are muzzled by your own admission by... Salem, Colorado, they don't want you talking about the lawsuit where Eric Coomer of Dominion is suing Randy Corcoran, 710 U.S., Salem, Eric Metaxas, Michelle Malkin, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Lindell, the Trump campaign. It's all in Denver District Court. I've been there to watch that. And finally, Judge Goldberg ruled that the case against Randy Corcoran and Ken U.S. can go forward. And you are a star witness, Peter. It's going to be great because you had Joe Oltman on in mid-November, right after the election. And I know Corcoran had him on first, his Saturday show, but then he brought him to you and you had the big morning show and your two straight softball interviews with, well, I mean, okay, he had bigger softball interviews with Corcoran, but you really didn't dig into how he could possibly infiltrate an Antifa call and determine that Eric Coomer had the power to screw the whole election out of the Denver, Colorado Dominion headquarters, the old spaghetti factory. Anyway, you were on that, and you were on to John Eastman. It doesn't matter that you came on after the lawsuits started being threatened. You were smart. You've been through lawsuits. You changed your point of view, and you know what? I voted for Trump back in 2016, and uh, I didn't like Hillary Clinton, and I was a host at KNUS, and then you voted for him twice in a row. I don't care when you get off the Trump train. It's good that you're off of it now, and nobody knows more about Marx than you, except maybe Alan Prendergast, who's written this great book called Gangbuster, and when... Steve Dave starts talking about cult Trump, cult 45, and the members of the cult being marks, the term you used to use in pro wrestling, they are the con artist victim. And that's what Gangbuster is about. And that's what Phil Van Sys used to do when he was an outspoken Denver DA. And when I was a prosecutor, that's when you started taking notice of me. And I still reference my days in the Denver DA's office. And I knew, I know you knew well my late boss, Norm Early. And we go way back, Peter. And it's great to be back with you on a Friday and to tell you that the word schmuck is used by Steve Dace kind of demonstrates he's not a Jewish guy. He's a big guy from Iowa, I think a white Christian nationalist, at least he's great friends with Randy Corcoran. And I'm real sorry about that falling out you had with Corcoran. And I know you have hard feelings and Dick Wadhams is going to come on and 
maybe I have some hard feelings too. You want an apology from Corcoran, who not only brought you Oltman, but he brought you Eastman, John Eastman, who may get charged along with Donald Trump for trying to ruin democracy. And it all flowed through your studio. God, it's cool to be part of history. Let's go back to our show so we can hear from your friend of mine, Dick Wadhams, former GOP party chair and former successful campaign manager for Wayne Allard's Wayne Allard, and who was a U.S. senator, didn't even need Klan help. That came back in the day in Gangbuster, and he was a, a campaign guy for Bill Owens, the last Republican governor we had, who is strangely silent, as we could use some leadership now, but. That's what this show is about. Let's go back to Dick Wadhams, who is showing some leadership. One, the only, our friend Dick Wadhams, and uh, this is really an earth shaker this morning. Dick, good morning. Thanks for coming on the show. Good morning, Peter, and I agree with you. Between Giuliani and Steve Day, this is pretty significant. Uh, and also more indictments that came down yesterday for Trump or on Trump. Um, yeah. What, what do you think? I mean, Giuliani, I was mentioning, I have f- just finished this book entitled Getting Gotti, and it's the legal people. We, we've read so much John Gotti and the Gambinos and the Columbos and everything that goes on. But this was the this guy's last name was Gleason, and he and Diane Jack alone were the first two to prosecute Gotti. They found out that the book talks about Sammy Gravano rigged the jury. They actually had it won. Uh, that's where the Teflon Don begins, but they end up using Sammy Gravano because Gravano rolls over on John Gotti. Do you think Giuliani rolled over on Donald Trump in that, uh, how many hours was he in there? I forget. But do you think he did more than just let these election workers off the hook? Well, I heard your discussion earlier this morning, Pete, and that's certainly the way it looks to me as well. I mean, uh, he was in there so long. Um, if If he confesses that he was lying about something so fundamental as those two women in Georgia and what what hell those people put those two oh, ladies oh. through. I I hope they continue their fight against this. Oh, um, he's as good there there's there's good as winners now. He's admitted he did I it. Hope yeah, so. he's admitted he did it. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, I do too. Uh but uh, no, I think that there's more to come and um uh Trump has kind of abandoned Giuliani in the oh. last uh, year or so yeah. and so yeah pretty sure that Trump, that uh, Giuliani is gonna, has no reason to stick with him. It is, and it, maybe it's because I just finished the one, the one book on what happens in, in the justice system. They did it with the tapes, and they played Sammy the tapes from the old lady's apartment with Gotti going after him and saying things about him. And then he made a deal with the feds, I'll roll over. And I think that First of all, Trump's the whole Trump family's treatment of Giuliani. They've also treated the Kraken like that too. And Lynn Wood has thrown his legal credentials into the into the fire, and he knows they're coming for him. And you know how how wide the circle will go, I don't know, but Giuliani's turned into a very sad person, and the Trumps have turned against him. Remember, he put in for legal fees. He said that he wanted to collect a bunch of money for legal fees from the Trumps, and they told him to go up, you know, go up a rope. And mm-hmm. so, um, and he, and this is in court filings, that he lied about those two Georgia women. 
And the women uh, claimed in the lawsuit that their lives were turned upside down. After my experience with uh, my good friend, Professor Eastman, I got a little bit of that. Um, but, you know, like that's, you knew this job was dangerous when you took it. But I, these are women that Giuliani set the dogs on. Yeah. And uh, so this, this guy, Dace, breaks down. What do you do with him? What do you do now with him? <clears throat> well, it will be interesting to see if what kind of an audience he has, because um, he will probably be abandoned by the true oh. believers in oh. the conspiracy theory. Oh. Oh. Um, count count on it. Yeah. But he's restored his own credibility, uh, Pete. By, uh, listening, that's powerful, what I heard this morning that you played. Uh, I had not heard it before that you played it this it just morning. Ha- actually, it but, just happened. Ah, okay. Anyway, I just, I just, uh, there should be more to follow <laughs> around the country. But I mean, okay. Dace appeared here many times, and he, I don't know why he didn't come back with us, but he would appear other places. And now he is, in, in essence, saying, um, well, and he speaks for himself, but he breaks down emotionally. Yeah, there's, a, there's a there's a video of it, and because he's doing it on Blaze, but he talks about Jason Miller, who of course was the former senior advisor to Trump, who said, "Yeah, we we didn't believe it," yeah. and and so he's in court, and he said he made false statements about election workers that Donald Trump himself claimed that these workers had tampered with ballots in 2020. And he added in his admissions that the statements he made about the former workers were constitutionally protected free speech. They said, no, no, they're not. And that's what Fox News found out the hard way as well. And Miller, but, and just uh-huh. what he, Miller was at the June 2022 hearings of the House uh, Representative Select Committee investigating the events of January 6th. And that he was present when a data expert told Donald Trump in pretty blunt terms he was going to lose. And that's been written in numbers of books. It's yours again. Yeah, and and I was just going to point out, Pete, that Jason Miller is now uh, a senior advisor again to the Trump presidential campaign. Oh, I know. So he, he's right back in the middle of it. You know, that's that's where the money is, right? Yeah, sure. What do you think somebody like that an advisor makes? Seriously. Well, six yeah. figures of some kind. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, he. I will say this about Jason Miller. He's been around, he's been around Trump now since the 2016 election, and uh, he got he kind of got pushed out of the circle mm-hmm. for a while, but he's back in, and he he is a Trump sycophant, yeah. and so I'm sure he gets rewarded handsomely for that. Of litigation only. Giuliani did this piece. Well, let me tell you a little about Jason Miller, because he had to leave the initial Trump presidential campaign because he fathered a child out of wedlock with, I believe her name was Miss Delgado. And he was married at the time to another woman. And she was mad and the heat was on, but Miller came back. He had to tell the truth under oath to the January 6th committee, and he did that. He was wearing a mask at the time. But let me tell you, Peter, that uh, Rudy, I think, has maybe taken this back. 
I respect Dick Wadham's opinion because he got off the Trump train quite a while ago. I think your references to the mob are super apt. It's like Lou Blanger back in the day, a hundred years ago, running organized crime in Colorado. It's mob-like behavior, and Rudy knows about it, but respectfully, I don't think Rudy and Bernie Carrick are going to do anything but try to throw sand in the face of Jack Smith. They're not good for cooperation. And in terms of money, it's getting funneled through AM radio, where Rudy somehow has an afternoon gig on a station controlled by a Trump supporter. So that's interesting to think about, Peter, and I appreciate that you guys think that Dace has finished, and he well might be, and I think the test will come with Randy Corcoran. Randy Corcoran has bragged about his relationship with Steve Dace, who I apparently has some sort of, or once had a nationally syndicated show, and he had Corcoran in as a fill-in, and they both made each other feel better. And I'm going to play you some sound after we're done on this Friday morning of Steve Dace back in the day with Randy Corcoran. And it will be interesting because he got up near 400 pounds. He's lost 100. He's had health issues. And we all know uh, the Corcoran family has suffered some health issues, and that's not good. You hate to see a family disrupted. I'm here on the phone with you, Peter, but... I don't know what it's like at 710 KUS up there on that sixth floor, 3131 South Vaughn. I went there for five and a half years, and I know that it got a little awkward with me and Corcoran toward the end. And how about you? Do you ever see him at the station? Do you guys have parties or get-togethers? What about the litigation? What about maybe you could talk with me about saying everything you know. I know the powers to be at Can U.S. want you to be muzzled, and you've agreed to that for now, but you've changed your mind many times. And heck, turning 80, isn't that liberating? Why not be a bit of an American hero and explain, Joe Altman? Volunteer for an early deposition. You're not getting any younger. Get a hold of Eric Coomer's attorneys. Say you want to be a whistleblower. See what they do. I mean, how many big guns and Dan Kaplan's law commercials can you do? Is it worth it to you? Wouldn't it be better for you to be an American hero? I think you could go out on top calling out radio. You do it now, but you won't name names. Heck, George Brockler used to say, I can't criticize Trump. I'm in the military, but it doesn't stop him from ripping Biden And here's what I suggest to you, Peter. Look at Joe Biden and realize this is a pretty decent guy from right around Pennsylvania. Scranton, that is Pennsylvania. Delaware, where he moved thereafter. He's got the upbringing you did, including in the church. He stayed faithful to the church. You moved away. But you want to move away this far? I don't know, Peter. Let's go back to this show. And he he is a Trump sycophant, and so I'm sure he gets rewarded handsomely for that. Well, Giuliani, for the purposes of litigation only, um, Giuliani did this, signs this, I I don't know what they're called, I'm not a lawyer, but 
the woman's name is Ruby Freeman, and her daughter's name is uh, Wandera Shea Moss. And their lives, she said their lives were threatened. And when the conspiracy theorist, as well as then Donald Trump and his ally Giuliani, claimed that they had committed election fraud in 2020, and then we, of course, that remember they had that very edited brief clip of security footage that was widely circulated. It was, uh, was used by talk show hosts and Trump allies as suppo- supposed proof. Giuliani claimed that Freeman and Moss were passing around USB ports like they were vials of heroin or cocaine. And in fact, huh. they were passing a ginger, they were passing ginger mints. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, I, you know, this is nothing but my real life now, you know, to chase this stuff since. But. Um, and if I could, fellas, just to jump in, and I'm not the one doing the laughing because I don't think it's funny. I think that. Peter, you just gave us great reporting on what happened to these two women. They were African-American, and these allusions to them passing drugs, that was part of it. And it's a white supremacy playbook. It's the Nixon Southern strategy. It's the stuff described on my last podcast, episode 158, with former evangelical minister Bradley Onishi. So you guys, Dick, Peter, you are on to it. I think you said, Dick, that these women should get a lot of money. I think what's really going on legally is Giuliani, who's hiding all this electronics. He's saying, look, let's just assume that I did lie. These women have no damages. Now they're famous. They're going to write books. They're going to make more money than they ever had. So, okay, let's assume I lied and then decide, are they really damaged? And no, hes I don't think he's going to turn on Donald Trump. He's too tied in with the guy. Maybe, maybe it'll be as, you know, Sammy the Bull Gravano situation. So maybe you're right, Peter Boyles. That's why we like listening to you, because you know a lot about organized crime. And let's get back to you and Dick Wadhams. So they um, they scapegoated him, and this woman comes out. Giuliani, what did he do? He was in there, I forget how many. He was in there a long time. Mm-hmm. And he had to do a lot, hell of a lot more in there than because George is going to be almost a Rico, but uh, he had to be talking more than what, except about those two women. Oh, I'm sure he's in self-preservation mode now. <laughs> oh boy, and and the, and and Trump's wiped their feet on him, and so there was no loyalty again back to John Gotti and Sammy Sammy Gravano, and Giuliani's playing the role of Sammy Gravano. That's the thing about Trump. He, um, I don't know why anybody goes to work for him because he he always turns on you, yeah. always. <laughs> well, with loyalty, with if you. Read what he says. Everything is loyalty up to the point where um, you have to be loyal with lying. And it seems to me that, and even then, after he's gotten rid of the Kraken and Linwood, and God knows what's going to happen to, you know, the the rest of the team, but or Eastman, who is, I think there's 11 counts against Eastman in California. And it's funny, not funny, ha ha. But I've said this before. You know, we had that giant run-in with John Eastman on the air. Dick Wadhams is here. 
I'm Peter Boyles in for uh, for George Brockler. Anyhow, the um, the the things that were said and the attacks that were made, you know, not one person, Dick, called me, texted me, emailed me, and said, "Hey, Peter, I'm sorry." I'm sure. I mean, I think he gets a lot more than just getting his license lifted. I think he could he could head to the can, but not one person said, you know, I said this about you or I said this about Eastman, and I'm sorry. Now, I don't, you know, I don't need it. The point was they didn't do it. Wow, Peter Boyles, that was from the heart, and I can relate. It's not cool to have Randy Corcoran start shit and then not apologize for it. Like when he made up that I was wearing some great blue suit on that last day and rushed off to see Brian Stelter. And you went with that. Holy cow, I'm so glad you're back. Back to uh, that issue of loyalty that you just brought up. And that week when you disparaged me, well, maybe you couldn't put it together. You never called me. You claimed that you did, but I have the telephone records and the data doesn't lie. And that's the beauty about Jack Smith and what's going on. But thanks for having me back on this Friday to talk with you and Dick Wadhams and about our old buddy, Lynn Wood. And you keep bringing up that Lynn Wood threatened Dan Kaplan. No, it was me who got called. I don't know what Dan says. It's a different thing that I heard doing a show with him for the better part of a decade. But he called me and he said he was going to own my firstborn son. And that was a little scary. And Lynn Wood had all that success on getting CBS to back down when they put on a great presentation through the Fleming Law Building. They recreated the JonBenet Ramsey house and... I watched it, and next thing you know, Lynn Wood got it shut down, got another boatload of money. But eventually, if you study Lynn Wood, and Peter, I know you like to read, read what his partner said about him becoming born-again Christian and writing them letters in the middle of the night, threatening them, accusing them. There was a change, and it's tied to Christianity, which I don't know very much about, that's why I have on guests like Bradley Onishi. But Peter, you were a Catholic growing up in Pittsburgh where you learned a lot. And a lot of your, dare I say, bigotries flows from that. And you've spoken candidly about the bigotries of your father and your uncle. And I hope you're better than they are. Not good enough for my taste. We can't really be friends anymore. But I do like you having me on on this Friday just for old time's sake. And I'm sorry if you really got threatened by John Eastman. I didn't hear about that till months after he hung up on you. I do know that Sidney Powell, the woman you called the Kraken, first time I ever heard her was on Can US with your pals Chuck and Julie. And then Randy Corcoran helped her feed information to Jenna Ellis. And oh my gosh, I can't wait for you to keep coming back and talk about this because George Brockler won't at all and you and Dick are just marvelous talking about it and it's good to be back on a Friday with you. Let's keep going. It's interesting. Well, they probably are still standing behind Eastman. There you go. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought of that. So, yeah, they still believe him. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's not. Yeah, he's, yeah. 
So any any and again, um, what does this do to the Republican Party of Colorado? Well, I mean, it just continues to. This is the the, the disturbing fact, though, Pete, that Trump still holds a huge hold on the Republican Party. He um, he's probably going to be the nominee from what we see right now. Um, this even with these revelations and Giuliani admitting he lied, it will embolden uh, yeah. many of Trump's supporters to be even more supportive, and. Um, that's just the reality we're living with right now. And that's what Day says. Day says, when I say this, you know, what what will you do? You look at look at how you've been treated and it won't matter to you. And that's kind of like Jonestown stuff. You know, it really is. Um, I don't know, sir. Yeah, we, we will. We will talk. But I want to get your thoughts this morning on this. This is one of those. Oh, I appreciate it. I wonder what Tina Peters is thinking this morning. Well, she isn't. <laughs> Remember, like, yeah, her. Oh, fellas, before you go off on Tina Peters, I tweeted it out, and I know you guys aren't on Twitter that Harvey Steinberg withdrew. And that was shortly after Lindell, Mike Lindell, who's getting sued along with 710 KNUS, uh, he started selling off his property because apparently he's broke. And I think he was bankrolling a lot for Tina Peters. So, uh, yeah, we can move on to a discussion of Harvey Steinberg, who I've known since I was a little kid. And holy cow, if you read this new book by Alan Prendergast, Gangbuster, there are a lot of Jewish lawyers in it. Some of them I've heard of, Phil Hornbein, Charles Ginsburg, but there's this, there was this guy named Ben Laska who played both sides. And uh, anyway... All the parallels from a hundred years ago. I really look forward to you guys listening to what we have to say on my episode 159. But I want to get back to your show and praise you, Peter Boyles, for bringing up a Jonestown reference because this is a cult. And I'm glad that you got off the Trump train. I'm not saying you were a cult member, but... You kind of worry. You love that birtherism. Let's just be honest for a minute, okay? Because if there was a top five of all time birthers in the history of the world, I just don't see how you aren't top five and Donald Trump's top five. In fact, you guys might be one and two, and you probably talked about it 10 times more than he did, and it drove your ratings, Jerome Corsi, Roger Stone, you'd have them on. Those were the same guys that QAnon and Trump relied on for that birther stuff. So you were really right there. And the only thing that you and Dick are really missing in your analysis is the white supremacy part. And when you talk about the Republican Party of Colorado, isn't that led by Dave Williams, who was a frequent guest on your show when KNUS was given over to your buddy Pat Neville? And that whole Neville family crew of gun extremists who wanted to sell guns through you and sell their really white Christian nationalist philosophy. And a big part of that is guns. Anyway, Peter, do you see that now? And you know Dave Williams, and he wanted to change his name for the ballot to Dave Let's Go Brandon Williams, which is Dave Fuck You Joe Biden Williams. 
And I think that's part of the problem because Joe Biden might not be perfect. And Lord knows he's as old as you are, Peter. And that's not your prime. But he still can function just like you're functioning this morning and do a better job hosting this show than really the host George Brockler or Donald Trump could ever do. Donald Trump, who wants to be a talk show host, he's about your age. He couldn't host his show the way you are this morning. And you are showing some candor, and you have gotten off the Trump train. So I don't want to be too harsh on you. I know who your buddies with throughout your life. You've loved Pat Buchanan, Tom Tancredo, these guys who really, well, they're not the best for the Jewish people. Let me put it that way. Pat Buchanan especially kind of gave us George W. Bush, who you can't stand, it used to be your independence, Peter, that we loved so much. The way you went after Bush and Gore and Clinton and Obama. You went after everybody except your buddy Tom, Tom Tancredo. But then along came the birther in chief and you fell for Donald Trump for a long time. So while apologies are flying and bygones are being bygones, I don't know. I hope that helped you think about things. Thanks for letting me be part of your Friday morning show again. Let's go back to you and Dick. You, you know, her trial got mo- is probably going to get moved into next year, Pete. Uh, oh, really? Well, probably. Yeah, yeah. It she she changed her legal teams. Yeah, well, wow. How come Harvey Steinberg? I was going to ask you this. The word came down that, there, that uh, I was told that Mike Lindell, the, the pillow who's now auctioning off his equipment, that Lindell sent a ton of money. I don't know whether it's true. My sources are pretty good. That he sent a ton of money to her, and she hired the best. And I think if I was in a jam, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be on the phone to Harvey. I know Harvey. And why did they kick Harvey off the or drop Harvey? Or, or did Harvey drop himself? That's what everybody's talking about uh, in Grand Junction and elsewhere. That uh, Did he leave on his own, or mm-hmm. did she... I, uh, but I, I also heard the same Lindell stuff you did, Pete, but uh, this new legal team basically has asked the judge to, to reschedule the trial from mm-hmm. October because they need time to get familiar with the case. But <laughs> the district attorney in Grand Junction has said, fine, we'll move it if you yeah. need to. So, well, yeah. I mean, eventually it – but I, I think Dave – and then she tried to weasel a job out of Dave Williams and – I know the Republican. Oh, he, the Republican, he promised for a job. Yeah, yeah. You know the Republican Party. I was I was at a dinner last night. Uh, Dean Singleton was there, and Gary was there. The Republican Party has no paid employees. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> Think about that. No paid employees. And why would why would you go to work with a company that that wants Tina Peters or any of these people? And, and I can assure you the Colorado Republican Party will be defending Peters when her trial starts. Oh, yes, as they will <laughs> say Giuliani's a liar. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Holy cow, you kind of hurt me there, Peter. I'm a better lawyer than Harvey Steinberg, a lot younger, too. He is in his 70s, and I will give you this. If you want continuance after continuance, he is probably the master. And he's a good lawyer. I don't want to put him down. And you know what? Hire Harvey, because I would not represent you, Peter, because at my age, and I'm a little advanced now, I'm not going to represent anybody who I think is a bigot. 
and you would probably like a Jewish lawyer, but I've seen you and the way you've led your life and the people you admire. And as my parents said, well, if you don't have something nice to say, why don't you keep it to yourself? But I do have some nice things to say to you, Peter Boyles, which is thanks for giving me opportunities. Thanks for not being on the air anymore. I watch Morning Joe. But you were good at your job. And I do think that you tried to rehabilitate your reputation, your Tom Tancredo-like reputation, by attaching yourself to Allen Berg, who I think was the opposite of Tom Tancredo. I don't think they would have gotten along, but you knew him. I didn't. I know his former wife, though, Judith, and I know that you called her a vile name. That's part of episode 101. You can listen to it. I wasn't there. And I'll let you get back to talking with Dick Wadhams. But I want you to know that I really appreciate you letting me come back on a Friday. And you can listen to my episodes called Boyle's Capitulation and the one I had Joe O'Day and Judith Berg on. I think episode 101, right after the guy you call Sport Coat Boy, Kyle Clark. Anyway, I'm up to episode 159, and my show publishes every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., the slot that I had for five and a half years with great sponsors and a huge audience of people who are starting to see the light about Donald Trump. But once you led the charge against me, well, then Randy Corcoran got that slot, and then you had your falling out with him, and now you can't even say his name, and then you took that slot from him. So it's interesting, and I hope you keep talking about the big lie and how Donald Trump is a cult leader, because that would make for better Saturday morning radio that you're delivering right now. But I published my podcast for 159 straight weeks, and it's on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Colorado time. And Alan Prendergast is a guy that you respect, that I respect, He's one of the greatest writers in the world. So I want to get back to people listening to him. He really knows Jean Benet, and I respect his opinion about that. Not so much yours, Peter Boyles, although you were a great entertainer and you gave me lots of opportunity on Jean Benet, Kobe Bryant, Columbine, through the years. We worked together. But good luck with Harvey Steinberg if you do get sued, and I know you're trying your hardest not to. And good for you for whatever reason you've done it. And Dick Wadhams, you've led the fight in the Republican Party. There's some Phil Van size in you because the equivalent of the Klan is MAGA, and we all know it. Let's go back to you guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, well, I think we got a break coming, Billy. 303-696-1971. We'll play more of Steve Dace, 710 KNUS. I'm Peter Boyles. This is the talk station, 710 KNUS. Hey, that was a lot of fun. And if you want to listen to that 7 a.m. hour, you will hear that Peter got calls from upset MAGA-based listeners, which is what comprises the audience of 710 KNUS. I don't miss working there at all. This podcast is so much better, as illustrated by my smart conversation with Alan Prendergast. And I got a little more hostile about Peter Boyles and talking with him. 
And I a little regret it, but it shows you what lights my flame. Because to me, the MAGA movement depends on people like Peter Boyles. And him withdrawing oxygen is a great thing, but he did it way late. And there's no acknowledgement of what brought it on and how to fix it. But I'll join forces with anybody who's anti-MAGA. I really will. It comes down to that. And I get to talk about politics and a whole bunch of other things now as we get part two of Alan Prendergast. We talk about Jean Benet. We talk about modern times, MAGA, DNA, so much more, so much more gangbuster. Enjoy. Hey, everybody, for all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years, and I know a lot of people. And if I can't do right by you, I can steer you in the right direction. My number, 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, a voice for people with legal difficulties. Holy cow, one more thing I promised. Randy Corcoran, he hosted the George Brockler Show not that long ago, mid-May, right after the Durham report was released, a big nothing. Durham, a prosecutor affiliated with Bill Barr, who sold his soul for Donald Trump for a while. Now he's off the Trump train. Durham tried prosecuting two people, lost both cases. There was nobody left to prosecute because the criming is on the part of the MAGA side, Donald J. Trump. And Randy Corcoran will not acknowledge that, and he's a big man. He is a state official for the Colorado Republican Party. He's an attorney. He's also getting sued by Eric Coomer and Dominion for his part in the big lie, taking Joe Oldman to Peter Boyles in KNUS, where they're also being sued. Corporate's the guy who knows Steve Dace. They've been friends for a long time. They're both white Christian nationalist radio hosts. Now, Dace weighs more than Corporate, which isn't easy to do. Dace about He says, if you listen to the whole hour, I won't subject you to that. But he tells Randy Corcoran he got up to about 400 pounds but lost 100. Way to go, Steve. And now we'll see, not that it matters much, whether he will move from Trump to DeSantis. But what kind of a move is that? The whole GOP is a cesspool, as illustrated by the fact that Randy Corcoran is one of their party leaders and he is fully MAGA. He'll be the last to turn. It will be interesting to see on his show, now banished to Saturday evenings, if he will address Steve Dace and what Boyles had to say. Probably Corcoran will talk about Boyles sometimes, but Boyles is afraid to talk about Corcoran. We've been over that. Here's Randy Corcoran filling in for George Brockler. Hour two of The George Show. George is back tomorrow. I'm Randy Corcoran from Saturday nights, 5 to 8 p.m. Tea Party activist, Republican National Committee man, litigator against forced government shutdowns during all of the COVID nonsense. 
represented medical professionals, represented businesses trying to keep them open. And it's all part of just a big out of control government mess. This is the Durham report. And those of you on Rumble can see what I'm holding in my hand, 306 pages of condemnation of the FBI, yet no recommendations for specific prosecutions, indictments, or really sufficient action. Very, very frustrating to me. And for everybody who's been waiting on the phones, we've got a great guest standing by, so stand by. There's an open line. You can get in line, and we'll get to your calls in the next segment. The phone number, 303-696-1971, 696-1971. Let's not waste another minute before we bring on the incredible Steve Dace. You can. Well, let's just interrupt for one minute for me to tell you a further thing or two. And this is why I play this sound. Because of the book Gangbuster. Back in the day, Phil Van Sice used a listening device to listen in as crooks plotted things. And when the Klan got active, he had undercover guys. To me, listening to Randy Corcoran talk with Steve Dace, it's like a hundred years ago. And I get to be a fly on the wall as MAGA, a.k.a. the KKK, a.k.a. the Klan, a.k.a. white supremacists, a.k.a. white Christian nationalists hold their little meeting. Let's listen in. You can see him now at Blaze TV, former nationally syndicated talk show host, author of fiction and nonfiction that will just blow your mind, and recently the very successful movie, And I still haven't seen it, Steve. I'm sorry to say we've got uh, some serious family health issues going on and free time is at a premium. But uh, Nefarious, how is the movie doing? And welcome back. Well, I've had some health issues myself recently, brother, so I am sensitive to that. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me. And amazingly, Nefarious is heading into its sixth weekend in theaters this weekend as we speak. So it's been kind of incredible to see this movie just kind of survive and hang around in this cutthroat industry, despite most of the movie actually is in a counterattack and a truth bomb on much of what the movie industry actually produces for content. So it's been fascinating to watch. Yeah, and that kind of content is doing better and better. Christian-made movies, values-oriented movies. Uh, and uh, movies like yours, which uh, for folks who maybe haven't heard of it yet, uh, I I will look and see if it's still playing in the Colorado area. Last time I looked, it was unfortunately down to one theater, um, I believe. But um, is it going to be coming out digitally? And tell people a little bit more about that movie, if you will. Sure. It, uh, Nefarious will hit uh, streaming in June. Uh, so it'll hit digital in June, maybe even first week of June. So a couple of weeks from now. Uh, so it'll, so that'll be late spring. Uh, DVD will happen late summer, probably uh, August or early September. And the movie is based on my 2016 book, A Nefarious Plot, about a demonic takeover of America. And think of Silence of the Lambs meets the screw tape letters, basically. Uh, and in this film, uh, a demon is going to walk a, uh, a left-wing atheist through the true origin of his worldview, where it actually comes from and how it actually has destroyed the civilization that he thinks his worldview is helping to to push into progressive enlightenment 
It is extremely well acted. And we have the, uh, by Sean Patrick Flannery, who plays our demon of Boondock Saints fame. And, and, and this is the 25th anniversary, uh, Randy, of Rotten Tomatoes, the film review aggregator yeah. online. And, and, and other than documentaries, we are, the, we are the film with the widest chasm. We are the feature film with the widest chasm between what the critics think and what the public thinks in the 25-year history of Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and we have a 33% approval from the critics, 96% approval from the, from the audience. That just sounds like a cult to me. So I'm not going to inflict you with a lot more of this, but it is instructive because I don't get to sit in meetings with guys like this very often, nor would I want to. Would you? But we can listen and hear things like this. Um, but I would look at it like, you know, I'm also somebody that's lost over 100 pounds the old-fashioned way. And if I, and I should have tried, I wish I would have tried losing this weight um, you know, uh, 20 years before I did, um, or actually I'm not that old, 10 years before I did. <laughs> and, and I'd be in a lot better shape, you know, the amount of weight I can lift and stuff now, it would, it would, it would show my, my body shape would show better the amount of effort I put into the gym. If I had started this in my thirties instead of my forties, you get what I'm trying to say. I, I okay? do. Yeah. All right. But, but I didn't. And so here's what I can't do. I can't say, well, because I started it in my 30s or my 40s instead of my 30s, I guess it's too late. So let's just not do anything exactly. because that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. All right. But 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 I need to also understand that this is a discipline. All right. I didn't I didn't get this way overnight. I was an athlete in high school. I played every sport there that we that there was year round. Um, and so I didn't just show up one day and I was nearly 400 pounds. I had to make a lot of very bad decisions to get myself to that point, which means it's not going to be some 90 day plan, some, you know, one year plan that's going to reverse all of those poor lifestyle choices. I need a new discipline. I need to learn a new way of living. And that's what I think our people need to understand is that we, ha we are trying to undo a generation of passivity here. And that's not going to be done in a singular cycle or anything of that nature. We are living in an era where we're just going to have to be much more engaged consistently than we ever have been before. And I think of the words of John Adams, to paraphrase, you know, I, I, study, um, I, I study the art of, of, of political warfare so that my sons can study architecture and literature in the next generation. That's the era in which we are in right now. Well, there you have it. I mean, that's like being in a Klan meeting. At least that's the way I envisioned it about 100 years ago. Don't have much respect for these guys, but I do for Alan Prendergast. He wrote about a white guy, a Christian guy, a lawyer, a Denverite, and a hero, Philip Van Sy's gangbuster. Oh, and just one more thing before I go. I take such inspiration from the post-DA life of Phil Van Sice. He kept speaking out against the Klan, even when it wasn't in his physical best interest. He was unafraid. He took to carrying a gun. He felt threatened. His family was threatened. They burned a cross on his Denver lawn. 
But the bottom line is Van Sides made a living. He kept being a Denver lawyer of great repute. His son as well became a jurist. I had cases in front of Judge Van Sides. I'm telling you, this is a rich Denver history. And just like Van Sides kept fighting even after his DA days, I've been doing that too on the civil side, on this podcast, in my Colorado Sun column, on the radio before that. Glad that you listened to me. Thanks so much. Keep enjoying the rest of Alan Prendergast on this special episode 159. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Part of it is your gift for writing, and you've not just written about this part of Colorado history. I would be a little remiss if I didn't bring up Jean Benet, because (laughs) you and I both somehow got involved in that story. That's an obsession, isn't it? I mean, for people who are are really into true crime, one of the greatest unsolved cases of all time. Of course, if you talk, depending on who you talk to, they'll tell you it's not unsolved. They think they've solved it. Correct. Right. But yeah, that's 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 a case that involves a lot of frustration for a lot of folks because it's it's so screwed up in one way or the other. Right. The, it's the a case that didn't lack for clues. It had too many clues. Too, too many clues. Too much evidence that's all compromised. You can't, you know, what can you say with confidence about all this evidence? Uh, and then you've got the whole Boulder mystique around it too. I mean, the politics of Boulder, the uh, the, com- the complexities of trying to put a case together like this. You've got a wealthy family involved. You've got this tabloid journalism that comes in and kind of messes with the integrity of the case as well. Uh, yeah, we we've both I think seen the gamut with that. I mean, that's and it's still going on. It's still out there. There's still books being written. Right. There's, it was at the dawn of the internet. It was one of the first cases that way. And when you talk about new technology with the the dick, the dictaphone that allowed uh, Van Size to listen in on Plancher, I'm thinking, gosh, what about my era? You know, we were the first to use DNA. So everybody gets their little technological advance, and now who knows what's going to be next. Uh, Well, you also have this entire country uh, full of, would be cyber sleuths, right? Yes. Who are interested in this case, 
almost every detail has been worked to death. I mean, there are almost no, almost no secrets left in this case because everything that was under seal of the grand jury came out sooner or later, one way or another, with different people giving their accounts. And I just think it's it, it's a hopeless conundrum. But it, that doesn't mean people still don't aren't attracted well, to it. Well, what do you, it out. And, and you've written about it beautifully. Just uh, Google Prendergast, an unusual last name, right? I've never heard of if you, another if you, get, if you get the R in, it's Yeah, unusual. so you get yes. Prendergast right and Sean Bonet, and you're going to find a bunch of stories. And what do you do with criticism that, hey, why are you obsessed with one little white girl? And why is it this big deal? Because I contend that at the peak of, say, 97, uh, I was on the O'Reilly Factor. It was the second biggest story of the year, me and Bill O'Reilly going over what had just happened the last year. If Alex Hunter could have said on Saturday night at 8 o'clock, I'm going to announce who killed Sean Benet and why, I contend that would have been the most watched television event in international history because it was an international mystery. And when people... I mean, you can answer for yourself, but I always say, if you can't care about a little girl getting killed in her own house on Christmas, what can you care about? That's got to matter. It's important. Well, I think it was a compelling story. I, I, I do think if you were going to look at the saturation coverage it's received over the years, that there's something a little bit disturbing about that. And, 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 and if she hadn't been tied to the beauty pageants, I doubt it would have gone national in the first place. But it, it certainly became this, uh, I mean, the mythology around it is so huge at this point. And, and, and really, I mean, I, just in the last year, I've seen more books come out that push theories that I think were discredited 10, 20 years ago. But people don't give up on them because people want to create, you know, their own particular monster to fill the shoes in this But case. here's the greatest mystery of all, because I don't know who killed Champagne, and I, I never either. said who did. And I kind of got to be on a lot of shows because I could see how poorly Alex Hunter was handling things. And I knew his reputation. And I stand by that. I mean, there was no sense of urgency. And maybe that was a factor. Or maybe he did the right thing. The grand jury did vote to indict. They came they out did. through Charlie Brennan. And we were all speculating on that. And people have made a lot of money exploiting the Jean Benet situation. But Lynn Wood, who eventually came on the scene, he sued CBS. Yes. CBS put on a program who really killed Jean Benet, and they theorized it was Burke, who was nine years old, accidentally killed her. Then the parents covered that up, and they had that theory of the case. It was on CBS that guy Clemente, who's pretty reputable, a crime investigator, Kolar, who Kolar, you covered. James Kolar, yeah. Right. And they had all these experts explaining why this theory worked. Then the next thing you know, CBS removed it. Lynn Wood suing them, made another boatload of money. Next thing you know, Lynn Wood goes crazy, starts writing strange notes to his law partners, becomes a QAnon guy, starts backing Donald Trump and MAGA. What's going on? Lynn Wood, who also represented Kobe Bryant's rape victim in a civil case. So I encountered this guy, Lynn Wood. And during Chambonnet, he called me and he said this. And my wife will back me up because I had to tell her when I got home, Silverman, you're going to stop talking about the Ramseys or I'm going to own your oldest child. Wow. 
And we were considering it because Ben, you know, at the time was <laughs> expensive. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, might be, got might a lot be, of money. might be a benefit to that. Anyway, Lynn Wood, how far he's fallen now. He's given up his law license rather than pays the music for his Magalize. What do you think of Lynn Wood? And what's <laughs> I, going on with yeah. that CBS special? And how did, what went down? I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think there was some overreach on the part of CBS in the way it was presented because that made them vulnerable to Linwood. I mean, and that's that's been a problem all along. I think the media have not been as conscientious about this as they should have been. And and they still repeat many of the same misconceptions about it. If, if you want to go back to what I think is one of the biggest crises of our, you know, that comes out of the Jean Benet case, it's, it's really... Um, the justice system or the institutions we're supposed to trust have lied to us about this in various ways. Mary Lacey misrepresented the evidence to us for years. And again, it was Charlie Brennan and uh, yes. Kevin Vaughn over at Nine News who showed that basically this this phantom DNA, which, I mean, if you still read 90% of the stories by John Bonet, they keep saying the parents have been cleared by DNA. That's not true. I know. They've been cleared, they've been exonerated by an apology from Mary Lacey based on a misinterpretation and I think a very deliberate misinterpretation of the DNA, which doesn't, I think, conclusively prove anything. And in fact, I mean, it's not its not just one source, so it's, it's very complicated in deciding whether this is even pertinent to the investigation or whether it is some kind of trace material. Um, and it's, you know, there's like five or six different traces material there so you're talking about a foreign faction of like half a dozen people involved do we really believe that uh so i mean i and one of the perpetrators of the dna makes it clear we didn't do it is john ramsey and lynn wood hey move on there's yeah. nothing to see here but no well i mean i just i just think when you can't when you can't i've even seen it in westward which is a store paper i wrote for i've seen lately stories by other reporters not as well informed saying They've been cleared by DNA. Uh, that's that kind of contradicts prior reporting in Westward, but okay. So you know, I I think we've seen this happen. Hunter misrepresented what the grand jury did. Lacey misrepresented the DNA. We're not getting the straight story. So how can we make any conclusions about all this stuff? I mean, I think it's very problematic. Right. It's it's mega like keep repeating yeah. something over and over until it gets into everybody's consciousness. Yeah, the election was rigged and yes. stolen and it, bullshit. Well, we have all these myths. Uh, this, this, this is another reason to go back and really examine history is to get past our illusions about what happened and get back to what really happened. I think that's important because uh, things get embedded in your mind and they stay there <laughs> and it's it's tough to figure out what the real story was at some point right and then yeah. others say well i know patsy did it or i yeah. know john oh did yeah it. and you it's know. like how do you know this right right the ramses did it well which one why explain it to me so i understand the problems let me talk to you about uh in our last remaining moments about where I've been, and I've heard you many times on talk radio, kind of in the belly of the beast, in my opinion. And I've come to a lot of realizations, and I don't know what your approach is on talk radio these days or what you've seen happen, but to me, it's become kind of this white Christian nationalist world. I see Jeff Hunt hosting the morning show today for Brockler, Jeff Hunt with Colorado Christian, which brings in like Jack Posobiec and other Steve Bannon types. Mm -hmm. I'm worried what's going on in the community. And again, 
its sponsors, like Bandemir, with their Christianity and their white Christian message to me, buying advertisers, buying up Colorado Christian. And I worry that that element, the part that supported the Klan, is still there. And one part of your book that got to me was Van Size when he's trying to deal with all these people and who can he trust. He endorses one guy for mayor who turns out to be a Klan exactly, guy. Exactly, yes. And I ended up working at KNUS, my producer, and Benoist to me was a neo-Nazi. It got brought out after I left, and he had to resign, if you remember the whole Kirk okay, Whitland yeah. incident. And then I realized some other people I worked with were really down on this. Do you think I was naive? Does this make any sense to you? I mean, just as the Klan back in the day had their media boosters, I see it here, and I see a lot of that white Christian nationalism, and it bothers me. And I feel it's my responsibility, since I was part of it, to call it out, just like you kind of called out westward, right? Right. Fact-checking a place where you put in a lot of blood, sweat, sure. and tears. Well, you know, talk radio, I think, has gotten stranger in recent years. There's no question about that. And to the extent that it's been sort of pulled to to one of the poles in all this, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that's I think that's really true. Um, I, I I think you have to be very selective about where you get your information and how you get it because it, it's always been well, what did Peter Boyle's always called it the cesspool of misinformation or something like that. That's talk radio. Um, you know, every, these days everybody can be everybody can have a, a platform of some kind or another, right? And not not many of them have any kind of filter or any kind of gatekeeping going on. And I think talk radio in particular is a is a dangerous area because it goes out to a lot of people, and it's very spontaneous or supposed to be sort of spontaneous, um, and it's not always clear where these people are coming from, right? Speaking of it going out to a lot of people, there has been a great book written, Gary Gerhardt, Kevin Flynn, about the murder of Alan Berg. Oh, sure. That's who got one. picked up uh, on his KOA broadcast up in uh, Idaho and the Richard Butler compound. It's the natural extension of what we've been talking about, yeah. the Klan, et cetera. But Alan Berg kind of broke the mold when it came to talk radio, and he got killed for it. One, he was a Jewish guy, talked about being Jewish, and he wasn't predictably conservative, and he didn't like racism, and he would call it out. And he got killed. You know, we talk about you know the kind of violence that, that uh, Ben Laska suffered, mm -hmm. but Alan Berg suffered the real violence. Oh, sure. Well, that, and that you was, know what I mean? That, that was a sort of, I mean, I think that was a watershed moment in a way, because the idea that these guys in their compound up in Idaho assigned that kind of authority to Berg, that, like he's somehow speaking for the Jewish conspiracy or something, right? You know, um, I think they sort of they sort of misapprehended who he was, but more than that, I mean, their own deadly ideology was going to lead them somewhere like this, if not him, some other victim of you know that they would target just out of their Jewishness or something like that. Um, and, you know, they, 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 there were, there were roots of that here in the Primrose Gazette. Yes. And, uh, I mean, they're, Primrose, they're... that Peter Boyles brought the guy on to defend his publication of the Protocols of the Elders right. of Zion. 
what you bring up in your book, because well, Henry Ford was publishing it right around then. Henry Ford was a great promoter. And that. then I got a kick that man sized just like me, who would never buy a Ford because I didn't like Henry Ford, although his ancestors apologized for his anti-Semitism. When I worked in the Denver DA's office as a chief deputy, I was assigned to Ford Taurus, which I drove <laughs> for about five or 10 years. And Van Size had a Model T. But, right. Thank God for his Ford to get away from yeah, those guys on the right. night they tried but, to chase but, him you down. Know, these things keep going around. This is why I think history is important. You go back and you realize, oh, this, this protocol of the elders of Zion really goes back to 19th century Tsarist Russia, right? And it's this bogus document that has been brought up again and again uh, signaling a new wave of anti-Semitism. And, and Henry Ford was part of that in the 20s, and there was a huge wave of anti-Semitism in the 20s. It has a lot to do with, I think, America's response to the rise of Hitler a few years later. Right, and in response to the rise of Obama, some people put forth birtherism, yes. right? Like yeah. Donald Trump who these, wrote these it. things are all... And Peter Boyles, who you oh. would think would have learned a fucking lesson from the murder of Allen Berg to not play around with racism, but there it was. And then with the birtherism, and you know Peter Boyles, and I know him a lot. And you've been on his show I a have. lot, and I've been on more. But I'm not going to be anymore. Just like Van Sice ends up getting you know, blocked by the Denver Post, that's the way I am with KNUS, which is fine. But I'm still monitoring these guys, including Peter Boyles, who needs to look in a mirror. He can now call out the big lie in private, right? He He got into it. And he ended up leaving the show because he was getting too much pushback. But why not at age 80 be brave and say, you know what? This is big life bullshit. I'm not going to be muscled because my station's getting sued. I'm 80 fucking years old. How many more machine guns do I need to sell for machine gun tours or, you know, God knows what? I'm just saying... He could be a Philip Van size, but he's clearly not going to be. A lot of people could be. Who's going to stand up and confront this bullshit that MAGA represents with all its bigotries, just like the Klan? And tell me if I'm wrong, Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, he was a member of the Klan back in New York. Um, I, you know, I think I heard that somewhere. I don't know that I know that. Yeah, during that convention in the 20s. Uh, well, I can't speak for Peter. Let me ask you, are, are you formally banned? You're not going to ever be a guest on any of those shows? No. But they, just they, I'm, pers- I am, I'm just like the, you described. Persona the, non grata. Uh, persona non grata. They, they don't want to talk about the Jewish guy who used to work there. You look at the people who have floated through that uh, white bastion of uh, talk radio, Allenberg, Reggie Rivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a problem there. And it's part of, I call it Denver Trump radio. Thank God Trump is toxic in Colorado, but these guys won't stand up to like Dave Williams, this this asshole who's running the Colorado Republican Party like John Galen Locke. Come on. Why why do you think there's no audience for something less extreme in talk radio? I mean, once upon a time, there was a guy named Gary Tesler who tried to run a liberal radio show, and it was a flop. With and another Jewish guy, Gary Tesler, right. Right, but but that was a flop. I mean, I I can't think of a liberal... Well, here, here, you know, people say that. One, talk radio is dominated by the Rush Limbaugh types, and I don't know if it could work or not. But the bottom line is an organization like Crawford, which owns KLZ, they say... That's a Christian family network. 
and they have a message to spread, which is Christianity. Same with Salem. They make no bones about it. Their primary purpose is to serve Jesus, and they come into a market. Now, I thought KNUS could be different because Peter Boyle's a guy who says, I'm not a Christian, was given the morning slot, and for a while it did change. And Peter Boyle's, the charm that he had was he was sort of against all politicians, except Tom Tancredo, right? He would castigate people on the right and the left. But when he saw Trump and the birtherism, he fell in love. And that was his ruination. He fell for Trump. Eventually, he was smart enough. And when the personal lawsuits started flying and he had hosted that Joe Altman, have you followed this Joe Altman? Randy Corcoran serves Joe Altman up to Peter Boyles, who gives him two softball interviews right after the election on Denver radio, and we're off to the races. The Coomer, Eric Coomer, uh, Dominion in Denver, fixed the election, said Trump will never win. Trump started tweeting about it. His son started tweeting about it. Part of the big lie grew right out of Colorado and KNUS. Michelle Malkin, too. Eric Metaxas. And then and these guys, Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager, who we thought were kind of reasonable and moderate, they sold their soul to the company store too. So it's it's surprising to me, just like Van Sice was surprised. Really? You're a clan guy? You're mm-hmm. going to be a clan guy? I mean, wasn't that the era? That's why he didn't have many friends, right? That's well, true, because he spoke his mind and he... Uh... Yeah, he he really was not out to appease these people, which a lot of other Republicans did. I mean, they they were they tried to find their accommodation with them because they recognized, well, these guys have the votes. So, you know, to the extent that we either don't talk about them because, you know, it's sort of a lie of omission, right? It's like we know they really stand for all this bad stuff, but we're not going to acknowledge it. Or or they, you know, actually actively endorse them in some level. And and that happened. Uh, I don't, you know, I think I think Van Sice was extremely disappointed that he couldn't get more mainstream Republicans to renounce these guys. You know that he he there was a core of people who realized this was going to be really bad, and that he was able to work with, but it wasn't nearly enough to turn the tide. I mean, Morley won that governorship by something like fifty thousand votes. That's an incredible, you know, for for that time period. That's that was overwhelming, and it's like wow. How did how did this happen in Colorado? How did these guys get so big so fast? Because he had the backing of big media at that well, time. He didn't did he? have the backing of big media. Big media let us down. There's no question about that. But I think also the party let people like Van Sice down because you know they, they they should have stood for something quite apart from this, and they they just saw that this was a path to power and they took it. Well, thanks for letting me get some of that off my chest, because sure. to me, Peter Boyles ultimately is a very disappointing character. And I thought it was wrong for the Denver Press Club to have him introduce Allen Berg. I know he claims to have been best friends, but I've had Judith Berg on my show, episode 101. She says that Peter Boyles called her a kike and that he expressed his anti-Semitism many times to her. Allen Berg felt it. Allen Berg did not feel that way about Peter Boyles. I tried to raise my objections to this going on. Judith Berg would have been glad to be there to inform the Denver Press Club, but they had their thing, and I'm, you know, they're entitled to do whatever on Glenarm at that Denver Press Club building. So I just keep thinking about it. And, 
you know, I was not there to witness the relationship. I was a young deputy DA when Allen Berg got murdered. And right. I heard the excuses for not bringing a case in Denver from my boss, a guy I loved, the late Norm Early, and I didn't buy it. To me, the killers of Allen Berg, that Bruce Pierce, who is a felon, and Van Sice liked career criminal laws, the big bitch, right? Yeah, yes. Right. Oh, yes. That's Bruce Pierce. That guy should have been prosecuted in Denver and received the death penalty from a Denver jury. That's my opinion, and uh, I wish that would have happened. I don't buy the reasons why it never happened. I mean, it should have. It's fine for a RICO prosecution in Seattle, but they could have proved this case in Denver. And normally said it would have been expensive. There would have been security risks. And it just left a bad taste in my mouth. And I told Norm that we could talk about those things. I, I mean, he, he made his call and I respect it, but I disagree. Yeah. Well, these are some these are some deep wounds you're talking about. Well, no, I'm I'm sorry to bring this up, uh, but uh, you wrote about Linda Huffnagel too in Westward. I encourage people to uh, take a look at that. You've written so many impactful articles over the years. Um, why don't you tell us what you think is going on right now in America? I think we're at a watershed moment, and I think your book has lessons for it. But put it in your own words. Well, certainly in terms of the book, I, I mean, I, I think there's a, whether people see parallels to MAGA or whatever, I, you know, quite apart from that, there's, there's some benefit to going back and understanding our own history and understanding how, you know, individuals, uh, we, we, we talk about history in terms of these big forces sometimes, and, and we really have to look down to individual decisions that are made. And that some of the choices that were made by the people in this book, I mean, they, they're rightly condemned 100 years later, but I think they were condemned at the time. And, and Van Sice was one of the people doing the condemning, um, but not enough people listened to him. And I, I think the fact that what we can take comfort in is the things that he made, did that helped to really sow the seeds of the Klan's destruction are pretty inspiring. And, and they're, they're, again, a matter of individual accountability and decisions. Um, I, I, I see that as increasingly what we need in this society is, is the ability to have people accountable for what they do and both the good things and the bad things. We should be celebrating our history, even in its shameful moments. We, we need to sort of confront these things and understand what worked and what didn't work. And for a long time, things like the Klan just weren't talked about in Colorado. I mean, that, that whole history, I never got that growing up. I never heard about Ludlow other than from my family, which had roots in Southern Colorado. Um, so these are things we need to hear about and we need to understand and we need to find ways to apply it to where we go from here. Because I think we can keep making the same mistakes <laughs> or we can try to find a better path. And, you know, this is all a cautionary tale about how these groups become such an insidious force among us when they seem to come out of nowhere. They're not out of nowhere. There was something there for them to work with. And we have to be very vigilant about stuff like that. And, you know, to the extent that you call people out on your on your podcast, I think that's one of the things we need is a lot of independent voices talking about this stuff. And they don't have to necessarily all be in concert, but I think they have to be able to understand history and take something from that. Boy, you are such a fantastic writer. I don't know where you got it from. It must be in your DNA the thing about your book, Gangbuster, we got a little heavy, and I did. I should have probably laid down when I talked to you about those wounds, because I do feel like uh, 
you know, a producer that you work with becomes, he's a neo-Nazi? That's, That's a little pretty, shocking. Yeah, I would think that would be pretty, uh, shake, shake you up a bit. Right. And so to me, it's become easy because I was kind of a man between parties. If you recall, when I ran for DA, it was as an unaffiliated candidate. Politics and prosecution are a poor mix. I don't really fit in with the Democrats, don't fit in with the Republicans. But to me, it's so simple now because I'm so fully anti-MAGA. So if you're MAGA, I'm on the other side. I think he will lead us away from democracy, can ruin America. And that's part of the reason for my podcast. And it can get a little heavy. But your book, Gangbuster, it's fun. There isn't a lot well, of horrible violence. That. It's funny. And you can't wait to turn the page to see what colorful character is going to show up next. And the way that Van Size gets various people to help him, these colorful characters who because they've been burned or because their conscience gets to them or they just have an internal fortitude like this guy Norfleet. Oh, yes. They, you can't wait to see what they're going to do and how justice is going to prevail. And that's the optimistic vision I get out of Gangbuster. Eventually, you know, that arc of justice, I mean, the arc of time bends towards justice. I'm mangling the MLK quote. But I think racism... It's been such a big part of our lives. We went to Denver public schools during forced desegregation. You'd think we could get past these racial issues, but as your book points out, and based on what I see as plain bigotries by MAGA, it's the same old conflict in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, I, I do think there's uh, there's parallels to be drawn. I mean, uh, you know, there, there are things that are different, obviously, uh, in some ways, the con games we're up against now are more sophisticated than they were a hundred years ago, but that doesn't mean we should think people a hundred years ago were stupid or something. I mean, I think we are, we're just as vulnerable to some of these messages as they were. It's just the messages are becoming more complex. Um, but I, I mean, thank you for saying that it was fun. I mean, that was really the object was that people have as much fun reading the book as I had writing it. And I really wanted it to breeze along. I didn't want it to be a ponderous, you know, kind of academic history about the Klan in Colorado or something. It's not a comprehensive view of any of those things, but it's one guy's perspective and, and, and following him as he tries to deal with these things in the context of, you know, being a prosecutor. And that to me is, is a more satisfying kind of story. And the fact that these characters are, seem more lively or something, that's great. I mean, I'm really pleased to hear that. I read your credits afterwards. I know Judge Boning, Larry Boning, and he told me a little about this story, but I don't really know the Van Sice family. Of course, Philip Van Sice, his son, Edward Van Sice, has been a longtime Colorado appellate court judge, ruled yeah. on some of my cases. Of yes. course, I respect them, but the way they kept their ancestors memory alive and are they still around town yes well edwin's daughter cindy was is the sort of the keeper of the flame meaning she has most of the scrapbooks now but various descendants of van size were involved in giving me access to this stuff things like that speech i mentioned the, the actual typescript of the speech those things would not have been possible without getting into the family scrapbooks and there's a lot of great stuff there, and they've kept it. And I think they're very proud of their family. I mean, both Van Size's father and his son, you know, were great jurists in addition to being, uh, you know, great lawyers, whatever. Um, and, you know, and Phil, of course, there's so much information there. 
those were great things to make the book come alive, which was to have access to those kind of materials. Well, I fell in love with Phil Van Size, Shoebuck Gangbuster, Alan Prendergast. Thanks for giving me a great podcast and a great week reading your book. Hey, thank you, Craig. I really appreciate it. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, I told you we had a great show, and I think we delivered. Alan Prendergast, you are a fantastic author, a terrific guest. Thanks for being on Troubadour Dave Gunders, your album connected, World Gone Crazy. Everybody, subscribe Dave Gunder's music on YouTube. I appreciate everybody listening. It'd be great if you would tell a friend. This show dedicated to our puppy friend, Layla, Layla Gunders. Enjoy our epic 159 and look forward to episode 160 next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.